everyone, and welcome back once again to another episode of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitali. We have a slightly smaller crew here today. Joining me, I've got James Galizio. Hey, folks. And Chow Min Wu. How's it going? Just the three of us today. It is our first TetraCast recording in March. We're all looking forward to spring, hopefully being here soon. Obviously, we've had a lot of releases in February, and we've had some early releases in March already. Adam is out due to some PC issues, and Josh, I assume, is out because he stayed up too late watching some Grand Blue news, that, or at least hoping for some Grand Blue news of some sort that didn't end up coming to pass. I don't know if you've got any more details on, on that, Chow. Like, because of his schedule for work, he would have been staying up anyways. So I think a good he point. Ju- I think he just uh, fell asleep early, and like, I mean, you know what? Hey, we do this every week for several hours a week, so having weeks off is A-OK in my book. Yeah, also a bit of a news-heavy week, so if he, he might have just like done the math and been like, I don't want a chance it. I'm just getting my beauty rest. Nope, in which I'm case, not. fair enough. Don't, don't blame him on this one. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think should just give him a warning. And anniversary streams are usually not the day that you expect news about like their other products it's more like news on their mobile game and all the quality life improvements that they're going to make for the but there's that little chance there's that five percent chance that they're gonna that they're gonna bring something well i guess there is one new trailer there is a new trailer for for the latest fighting game character that they added which is uh anila and anila is actually voiced by a hatsu from from uh, yeah in english yeah yeah if you remember her she used to be the editor for trails of cold steel so you know, <laughs> big, uh, big role changes, I guess. No, yeah, it's yeah. been fun. It's fun, been fun to follow her on, on Twitter as she, you know, yeah, kicks off her cool. voice acting career, which has always been cool to see and land a role like that. <laughs> and she's a hardcore Grand Blue player. She basically unlocked everything you can imagine possibly think of in that game. The Super Saiyan Blue skin. Was it the Redlant weapons of this one sort where it's like you have to kill one of the hardest boss when the game first came out? Or not when it first came out, like a couple years after it was like the hardest raid boss, and you had to kill it by yourself instead of having a team of six people. And she did all that, so now you can get the weapon, but you also need to grind these other materials a thousand times, so it takes forever to get them. Is this and in the mobile game or the or the fighting game? In the mobile game, mm-hmm. you get these really cool, fancy weapons. The skin, if you can kill the hardest one, the hardest boss by yourself, he's not really hard anymore because the game's been power creep a lot. So, so it's like really. But easy at the to time. Kill. But at the time, he is very difficult because he had all these like puzzles and it was new at the time. This guy, like when you fight him, he comes in, there's like 12 labors or something like that. And then all your characters need to somehow get through these labors before you could actually hurt him. And people did not understand what to do back in the day. And and now they do. So he's like really easy. And and there's like other puzzles, too. The guy uses this attack called the Gopherwood arc. And if you break every character of the same race, they all die, and no one understood why. But, you know, gopher wood means, you know, like, one of each animal from the arc, right? That's how you bypass it. So you have to bring one different character from each race to bypass this attack so you don't all die. Like, there's a lot of these puzzles from this boss, which is kind of cool. And I don't think they could implement it through the fighting game, so... But the, but the news that everyone was hoping to see, Grand Blue Fantasy Relink, I'm assuming yep. we got nothing? We got nothing. It's all mm-hmm. about... It's all about quality of life improvements. All right. Until until Josh can set the record straight, I'm going to assume that he was up covering this and then just got too sad. And now he's just sleeping it off. So that is speculation on my part. <laughs> that is on my part, too. 
So at the time of recording, it is March 4th, and obviously March, maybe not quite as many heavy hitters as February, but we did put up the probably the biggest release of this week is Wolong Fallen Dynasty from the creators of Neo and Neo 2. And of course, we do have a few other releases coming up in March very quickly. We've got the localization of Trails to Azure. We've got uh, Mato Anomalies, which is like a new debut project semi-indie title that's coming out in a few weeks. And then, of course, the delay of Atelier Rise of 3 was moved from February to March, coming out at the end of the month, which we've been able to talk about in a few different contexts as well. So I know a lot of us, including me, are still working through. I want to get back into Endgame on Wild Hearts, still working our way through Occupied Traveler 2. Haven't started Ishin. For those that are uh, really into Diofield Chronicle, we have an update on a new content patch for that game. I believe it's coming out tomorrow. We'll go into that headline near the end of the podcast. But we'll start out with Wolong Fallen Dynasty, which is kind of in an interesting spot because James, of course, was able to talk to this game several months back, at least a handful of months back in a preview context. But at the time, you were able to complete the game start to finish in the preview window. Is that correct? Yep. So when's the last time? So I'll just kind of say here that you were able to, of course, write our site's review for Wolong Fallen Dynasty. But when's the last time you actually booted it up? Or did you boot it up again as you wrote the review? I did boot it up a few times when I was writing my review just to make sure terminology was correct. And also, um, to be blunt, that issue that Wild Hearts had with the disco lights, Wolong also had up until it was even present in the demo. So I was very concerned I was going to make it into the final release, much like Wild Hearts. But I did boot it up a few days before the launch just to double check one last time. And I didn't even see that it had gotten a patch on my end on Steam. So it got fixed. I don't know when it happened. It was definitely really close to the wire. But uh, yeah, that was like the last time I really checked. It was probably like last couple of days of February. Did uh, go through a mission or two and was like, yeah, just enough to remind myself of what I thought about it and all that. So obviously we have spoken pretty highly in the last couple of years on this podcast about Neo 2. I believe it ended up in our top five for the year it came out. Was that 2020 or 2021? I forget how long ago that was. And then it ended up on the top of my personal list for that year. So I've always been really excited to see what that team could do with a new IP like Wallong Fallen Dynasty. I know that you've had a chance to already talk about that game in a preview context, but I don't know if you were able, when you kind of put your thoughts to paper, writing out the review, if... You kind of had a final impression of what you thought about Wolong Fallen Dynasty as it released this month? Yeah. So I think it kind of comes down to like, it's still a great game. And I think a lot of people that are going to play it are going to enjoy it quite a bit. I don't think some of the ways that the game has been, that the game kind of tackles simplifying some of the aspects of Neo will maybe land well with everyone. Like, I know a lot of people really dislike the keyhole system from Neo, but I also equally understand quite a few people that really enjoyed that extra bit of management, the different stances, and how it really felt like you could make a very unique build that was unique to you, like something that only really you were using, or you could, like, there was, there was a real build craft to it. Wolong... <sighs> At the beginning of the game, it's not imme- it's not immediately obvious, but once you get near the end and then like once you finished it and you look back on the whole experience, I think the number one issue Wolong has is that 
no matter what weapon type you use, no matter what your build is, generally everyone's low long play style is going to be pretty much the same. And I said in my review where it's like it and even my preview where it's like low long feels like so if Neo was Team Ninja's take on Dark Souls. And when I mean Dark Souls, I mean like different builds, having the ability to really make your own unique play style. But obviously it has some of like Team Ninja's more action oriented history, like kind of baked in there. Well, Long feels like their take on Sekiro, where basically the entire play style is deflect, deflect, deflect. But the thing with me is that Sekiro, like even if you're like, the main gameplay aspect is the parries and you're parrying constantly throughout the game. There are attacks in, in like Sekiro that you cannot parry or there's some attacks that you need to do something slightly different, like the Mikuru counter. And Wolong doesn't really have that. There are no unblockable attacks or are no unparryable attacks. Every single attack you can just deflect. And that means that by the end of the game, and especially considering each of the weapons move styles are very, very similar. It just, I didn't feel the urge to go into New Game Plus, whereas with like Neo 1 and Neo 2, it's like, yeah, no, I'd love to go into New Game Plus because it's like I have my full moveset or I'm even like adding even more to it. So I'm going through it again and it's like it's a different experience because everything's harder, but I also have more tools at my disposal. But with Flow Long, no, it's just like it's a little bit tougher, but otherwise it's basically the same exact game. I remember some people kind of criticize Sekiro. I can't speak to any authority because that's out of all of From Software's games since Dark Souls 1. That's the one I haven't played. But I do remember just reading reviews on that game and people talked kind of in a similar thing where it's like it's not necessarily, at least in the case of Sekiro, bad. It just you don't have that paradigm shift if you change weapon types and the game feels completely different or you can like kind of, you know, craft your own play style based on the tools available. It's a little bit more. Yeah even where everyone kind of feels and has to kind of have the same skill set, same approach. Maybe not the exact same, but very similar. It's a little bit more more guide railed. Yeah. And like and to be clear, I mean that's exact that I wouldn't say that's necessarily an issue with Sekiro, but I feel like it is an issue with Full Long, specifically because again, like every single fight, you don't maybe you don't realize it until later on, but every single fight essentially boils down to the same thing. Especially considering like the uh, red flash attacks, I think they're like called fatal attacks. I don't specifically remember that part. Um, the counter timing for those is always right whenever the like red line or white, red and white line flash appears. It's like a similar effect for every single attack, fatal attack in the game. If you deflect as soon as that appears, you'll, you'll, you'll land the parry perfectly fine. Like the parry timing is so like generous compared to the alpha, and even compared to something like Sekiro, I feel like again, I haven't it's been a while since I played that, but between the parry windows being pretty generous and every attack being being deflectable, it's like it wasn't necessarily a problem in Sekiro because there were some attacks you couldn't deflect or you couldn't parry, so you had to do something different. But you had to do, you had to do something different. Well, I don't know about Sekiro, but in like Neo. And just even like Wild Hearts, it was, I know it's a kind of a different style game, but there's each different encounter had like a different pacing in terms of you see an enemy rearing up to an attack, whatever its tell is. Sometimes you got to move immediately. Sometimes you have to. There's a little bit of a delay. It sounds like here in Wolong, it's kind of like the timing doesn't change from from fight to fight. 
Yeah, maybe the windup is different, but you get like a visual indicator for exactly when you need to press that button, which isn't yeah, a that bad kinda remi- thing. That kind of reminds me of like the Arkham games. I know it's a very simil- different, sorry, not, diff- not similar, a very different style game. But in those games, they're criticized, at least the early ones, for being like they play themselves because you just press the button as soon as you see the indicator on the enemy's head and you don't have to yeah. think about it. You just press it. Yeah, it, it is a fun roller coaster ride, and I think some of the level designs in the game are pretty good. Some of them less so, but overall, generally decent level design. The enemy like designs, as in like the visual aspects of them, are pretty good, even if there is less variety versus like I think even Neo One. But it's just at the end of the day, I feel like some people are going to go into Woe Long expecting Neo Three Kingdoms because that's what everyone was saying it was going to be. And that's what everyone kind of expected because like they were even advertising it as from the developers of Neo and some of the creatives that worked on Bloodborne, which I it's it's not a bad game. I enjoyed it. I gave it an eight. I would recommend it if you are a fan of Souls like titles or anything like that, because it's still worth a playthrough, especially since it's on Game Pass. If you have Game Pass, play it. You'll have a great time. I just don't think that like maybe there will be some people that enjoy the more like toned down aspect of it. That's like, well, not even toned down is the right word. But you get what I mean. It's like it's a great game, but I don't think people that loved Neo, Neo 1 and 2 are necessarily going to like this as much as those games. Specifically because if you loved Neo 1 and 2, there's probably at least one thing from those games that will feel conspicuously absent from this one. Well, I, I remember when we were playing, when we were talking about Neo uh, 2 at least, because I haven't played 1, I was, I was, we were doing one of our YouTube videos on it, and I was doing like a spellcaster build, and at the time we had George Foster, he's like, I didn't even know you could do this. And that's what I felt like Neo really had is that there was so many ways you could approach fights and do you could do the the shuriken and like the poisons. I forget, I forget what they call it in that game. Or you could do like the orbs and the spells. Or you could just do, I believe what Adam did was just sword and shield all the way through. Didn't ever touch the spells or the or they like the ancillary stuff. So that's one thing I really liked about Neo that if I do plan on getting to Wo Long, if that's kind of absent, I will feel, you know, not necessarily that's a bad thing, but maybe disappointed. Maybe opportunity for the IP to grow from from where it's starting. How did you feel about the just like the theming, the Three Kingdoms era, that that sort of stuff? I mean, I've I'm not super familiar with Chinese history. I mean, I wasn't really familiar with Japanese history when I played Neo. So kind of coming from the same standpoint, from what I can tell, like the delivery of the story is similar to how Neo one handled it. But with a main character that's more in line with Neo 2, but Neo 2 kind of had the buff where like even if the main character was kind of separate, there was like that kind of connecting thread with Hide as well as the whole. Well, I don't know, I just I don't think the story is is really that great from a protagonist standpoint and tying into the historical aspect of it, I think that. Both Neo 1 and 2 did a much better job of that with their respective stories. But I'm also one of those people that actually prefers Neo 2's story over Neo 1. I understand that there's a a number of people that disagree with that, that assessment. So who knows? This is kind of this is kind of dialing in on a very specific thing. But when I played Neo 2, the thing that surprised me most about that story is how much time passes. Like this whole story takes place over the course of like several decades. And I don't know if that's yeah. the same kind of here or if this is more more compact. 
It kind of has the same thing where a lot of time will pass and it's not immediately obvious unless you until you look at the time frames listed in the act that you're playing them in. So kind of similar to Neo 2 in that aspect where it's like, oh, you don't maybe unless you're familiar with with the history, you maybe don't realize how much time has passed because the game doesn't really communicate that well. Which again, I mean, it's an action game. And I don't think even like even Neo 1 and 2, even if I enjoyed Neo 2 story, I don't think the story is really the main draw of it. It's a historical fantasy, in which case I I would say that like Will Long does like deliver on that aspect of it, at least. And I know I believe it was Josh, or not just him, but most of us kind of came together to predict that we're talking about the state of PC ports for these early releases, both with Wild Hearts, with Like a Dragon of Shin. And uh, we were saying, well, long, going to be the same. And I pulled it up on its Steam page here. All reviews, mostly negative. One of the reviews saying, how did they word this? This is the biggest catastrophe of a PC port that I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's I've just like a popular streamer and they have like a 4090 and just couldn't even like properly play the game. It just crashes or something like that. Hardlock the PC. I guess Forspoken was another one that was kind of in that same boat. And based on based on what we've been able to look at, it seems like Ryza 2, or sorry, Ryza 3 is the one that is going to be our savior for PC ports, apparently. But it's unfortunate. Yeah. So, yeah, when you say it's on Game Pass, I guess, you know, it might, might be better to play it on if you've got a series rather than Game Pass for PC. Yeah. <laughs> I will say besides the stuff... Well, here's one thing. I'm not sure if all of it is shader compilation, sir, because I do know when I did the preview that at least the build I played then had really poor frame pacing. And the preview build I played was 60 FPS locked at the time. The one way I was able to fix it was actually by setting my ref- my refresh rate of my monitor to 60, and that made it smooth. So it's like maybe there's just still like frame pacing issues inherent with the engine, which granted... This is the same engine as Wild Hearts. That's the only re- reason that there would be those like same disco laid issues pre-release that um, was present on Wild Hearts with uh, RDNA 3 GPUs. And as we are painfully aware, Wild Hearts PC port is, uh, well, not even just the PC port, just in general, that game is a mess, technically. Well, there's like, the, for well long, it seems like, and I think this is also for Wild Heart. There's people posting their specs in the Steam threads here, 3060 Ti's struggling with the game and all sorts of things. So your mileage may definitely vary quite a bit with Wolong in terms of PC performance. And I don't know if the developers have stated any. It's one of those things where it's been so commonplace now where you kind of expect, I don't know how to, I don't know how to frame this. You almost, you almost kind of expect that the patches will come in fast and furious to get them. Oh, yeah. Fixed like just, just the other day, Ishin got a patch on PC and just just today, Digital Foundry's video on it went up and they said that the patch fixed all of the stuttering issues that they could find. So it's like, great that it got fixed. Why the hell wasn't that at launch? Yeah, it's like, do we praise them for that? It's like, you don't want to just assume it's no. going to be fixed. You don't want to just be like, well, thank, thank goodness you fixed it within a couple of weeks. And that obviously makes our our job or our hobby hard because... We want to call it out when we see it, but then if you do call it out and it's fixed within a week, it's like, is your is your initial call out less valid now? It's very difficult. Yeah, but we kind of we yeah. kind of already dug into that a couple of weeks ago when we really got into this topic. It's kind of frustrating, and there's really no clear way out. It seems like it's all based on you know publishers trying to hit you know quarterly deadlines to when these games have to release, and knowing that they have the ability to fix it in post, you know, truly. 
kind of gives them that ability to do that, which makes everything just kind of be a catch-22 on that front in terms of judging games for their technical performance, especially on PC. Yeah. So I know that for for a new release, that was a little bit brief, but did you have any other final comments on Wolong Fallen Dynasty? I think as we go into April and May, we'll have more people kind of have time to get into this and we'll get some fresh perspectives. But, you know, I guess here's your... Here's a chance to you know make a final closing statement on it if you'd like. I mean, I've talked about this game a lot over the last couple of months. Like even before the preview, I talked about my thoughts with the demo. I'm sure last year, and it's just it's. I've talked about it so much, and uh, basically everything I have to say, I've already kind of said. All right, then. So we can uh, we can table the Wolong Fallen Dynasty talk then for now we do i know we have plenty of people on site that are interested in trying it out me and adam have both been really big fans of neo and it's it's interesting for us to be like of course we're going to try out wolong because we're fans of neo and then you're saying well that doesn't mean you'll like this game but obviously we'll revisit this as we get some fresh perspectives on this game uh, throughout the coming months however one game that i wasn't expecting to talk about this week on the podcast but you kind of brought it up in chat a little bit before we started recording is you mentioned that you had a lot of thoughts on something that also released recently, and that is a new expansion, I presume, to Destiny 2, a game that we do not talk on the site often about. So uh, uh, kind of t- tee me up here. Uh, what are you interested in talking about for Destiny 2? What is Destiny 2 Lightfall, and what are your thoughts on it? Okay, well, to start off, I feel like this does require a full disclosure. The main reason I am playing this is because at that Persona launch event in January, I met up with a former writer for the site, Cosma, who mm-hmm. he currently does some work at Uber Strategist PR and outright asked if we would ever be interested in covering Des- Destiny again, because I covered base game Destiny 2, I covered Forsaken, but then I kind of fell off. And I said, sure, I don't necessarily want to like shell out the money to like catch up on the expansions myself, but I would be interested in checking out the the latest one if given a code. So I will I will chime in here and just say it is hard. I remember I was I was following when I say it is hard, I mean following and covering service games. I was doing Fallout 76 for a bit, fell out. I was covering Fantasy Star Online 2 for a little bit. Hard to keep up. You can usually everyone can kind of cover maybe one. And like usually, like you got Final Fantasy fourteen yeah, is a yeah. big a big title for our site. So I I get I mean, it. Like I, letting, I, I mean, hey, I've been covering like Sunbreak. I've been covering fourteen. I feel like I've been doing like relatively uh, relatively timely. Uh, no, yeah, you've been doing you've been games. doing really great. And then, and then Chow, I know, is always able to speak to the like the Genshin Impact updates on this podcast on a pretty frequent basis. But it's difficult because so many of these games we have RPG systems that are. Uh, Service games, it's just hard to stay on top of it. It's a lot of time and effort. Yeah. But anyway, back like on to player retention. So it forces you to keep coming back and you just can't mm-hmm. leave it alone. Mm-hmm. So back on to uh, Destiny 2 with that, uh, with kind of that framework out of the way. Yeah. The main reason I kind of dropped Destiny 2 back, at the, back when I did was a number of different factors. The first thing was when I was playing Forsaken, I had a buddy of mine that I was also playing it with, um, and he kind of stopped playing. And when Shadowkeep came out, before we actually got around to doing the Shadowkeep stuff, he wanted to go through the seasonal activity stuff for the previous expansion Forsaken because he hadn't gone around to doing it. 
and he got burnt out, wanted to play something else, and I didn't want to just play Destiny. I to be to be frank, I would rather be playing some. I at the time I rather would have played something with him than play Destiny alone. So I dropped it, didn't play it for a bit, and then there was the Destiny Content Vault stuff. Where if right. you aren't familiar, I'll just give a brief synopsis. Bungie is the only AAA game studio to actively remove game content you paid for from a game. Because that's what the Destiny content vault was. Around the time that Beyond Light came out, they said, okay, the game's getting too big, which granted, it was huge, like, like file size. But they also said that there was like spaghetti code or something that made it so that the more content they added to the game, the more the game, I can't even believe they admitted this, was basically falling apart, the seams. So they got rid of a significant chunk of the year one content from Destiny 2. Like the entire original campaign, half of the original planets completely gone, and then all of the other year one content. So the year one seasonal pass stuff. So the Curse of Osiris stuff, which was on Mercury, and the Warmind stuff, which was on Mars. And it was really the latter one that really got me because I liked Escalation Protocol, which was which was content on that one patrol zone. And I thought that the Warmind DLC stuff was actually really cool. But besides the fact, it was just bullshit. Because if you buy a Destiny 2 disc on PS4 or Xbox One, none of the content on that disc is playable. Like there's Literally two, none? Like, or, or just like... The, camp, the, camp, the campaign completely gone. There are two of the planets that were from the original like release are still there, but none of the content associated with that original release is playable. Not none of the raids. There might be a single strike from some of that content that's still there. I don't know. But like most of that content, like 90% of that content gone. It just and for then, me, it's just like I want to play devil's advocate. I want to be charitable. I just, it's just so hard to like get a latch on it, wrap my head around it because like we've had games like does this. we've had games like EverQuest and RuneScape and Ultima Online, I think. Like basically games that have had decades of content edition, Final Fantasy XI, and like, and I know like the situation for each of these is different, but like what is, it's just hard for me to try to be charitable, try to play devil's advocate and be like, what is so different about Destiny 2? As you've been talking about it, I've been reading up on their site. And they really, they literally use wording like to make room for new experiences. I'm like, what do you mean by make room? I just, I just can't get it. I don't, it's just hard to understand. So anyways, anyways, um, put it mildly heading into light fall, bit scorned, bit scorned. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, is that I've even had little spats with the destiny Two community on reset era in the past Mm -hmm. where it's like, I've mentioned how like the whole reason I'm not playing anymore is because was because of the Destiny content fall. And they just said, well, the people that actually play Destiny don't care because they didn't play that content anyways, in which case it's like, excuse me? It, whatever, whatever. Um, well, do they say they, they didn't play it because it wasn't any good or because it well, wasn't worth it or what? Because I'll be frank here. Playing through Lightfall, I am very, very concerned for the Destiny community. Like, legitimately i'm concerned about their well-being because lightfall is fine like the content is fine the campaign is fine but the amount of content this 50 dollar expansion ads is comparable to the like the 20 dollar seasonal dlc the warmind dlc from year one of destiny 2 because 
let me put it this way. The last major expansion for Destiny 2 I played was Forsaken. And mm-hmm. that came with two patrol zones, a raid, four strikes, which are the equivalent of... A trial. Well, nope. a dungeon in like 14, oh, where it's okay. like there's a number of different challenges and it's like, it's replayable. You get loot, you, there's all sorts of stuff. It's mm-hmm. not an apples to oranges, an apples to apples comparison, but it's close enough. So there was four of those. There was a raid. There was a bunch of new PvP maps, and then there was an entirely new PvP mode, and as well as a new activity called a dungeon, which isn't like a like a Final Fantasy or like a Final Fantasy fourteen dungeon. It's more like a mini raid for three people instead of six people. And when I like when I reviewed Forsaken, I was really positive on it. Like, actually, let me see if I can find that review because I remember that I like after coming back from the base game, which eventually I realized wasn't as good as I thought at first. Like I was positive on, it. I gave it an eight, obviously had some issues, but I thought that was like, it was a good step for like destiny to go in. And mm-hmm. at the time, everyone agreed with that. And in comparison, Lightfall is a, so Forsaken got all that for 40 bucks. Lightfall is 50 bucks for the base game, base expansion, you get one patrol zone instead of two, one strike instead of four, a raid, no dungeons. Dungeons will be coming with the seasonal updates, but those aren't free. In order to get the dungeons, you need to either have the deluxe edition, not the season pass, the deluxe edition, which is an additional 50 bucks, which if I had paid for this out of pocket, this entire thing would have been 100 bucks. And you would get two dungeons over the course of the seasonals, Whereas Forsaken, Shadowkeep, and Beyond Light all had dungeons that were basically just included for free. So not only is the expansion much smaller, but it's more expensive. And it's like, I keep, apparently it was like the same thing, like the Witch Queen. And like all of these like Destiny players are saying, oh, Witch Queen was awesome. It was like the best expansion. And I look at the content, it's like, okay, maybe the campaign was great, but or. It's is this what the standard is now? <laughs> and as you talk about this, I'm pulling up the Steam reviews. And I don't want to just say like the consensus is always right, but in the absence of having firsthand experience, it's interesting that, you know, twice in the last few months I've seen mostly negative reviews on a on a few things, Wild Hearts and Wolong, but targeted it for a very specific reason. And as I kind of parse through these negative reviews for Destiny Lightfall, it seems like this is way more general. They talk about Apparently, the story goes in a direction they don't like. The lack of content says the only reasonable explanation is that they're diverting resources somewhere else, which kind of makes some sense. I wonder what Bungie's working on outside of Destiny 2. People talking about the lack of the new itemization. So it's it's interesting to see a lot of negative reviews, but they're not all dialing in on the same thing. They all have different reasons for feeling that way. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm still enjoying my time. Because even Destiny, a Destiny expansion with like very little content is still a good time. I put almost 40 hours into this damn thing and I've only had it for less than a week. Granted, I'm playing it with friends. Granted, I'm kind of like scouring for all the little bits of content I can find in there. Granted, I'm trying to get ready for the raid. And like if I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the Forsaken review when I when I wrote it, but I really enjoyed the raid. And same thing with base game Destiny 2. It's like, I think. I'm not sure if I've said it on the podcast before, but like, like once I got into raiding in 14 and I started thinking about it, it's like, actually, I think I prefer the raids in Destiny. <laughs> like, I think they're more mechanically interesting. I think they have a lot more going on from like a spectacle and whatnot. And it's like even going through some of the 
exotic quests for like the like special guns that you can get in this ex- this expansion. One of those exotic quests reuses assets from a previous expansion's raid, which granted, I think that's great because not everyone's going to be doing the raids. And one thing that I've noticed is that the raid locations are always like a spectacle. They always look beautiful. And it's like, it would be a shame if they were only used for that one bit of content. So not complaining about that, but it's like, I'm excited to keep playing this. I'm excited to do the raid. I'm excited to see the seasonal stuff, but it's just well, if you're, so if, conflicting. If, if, if your last experience with the game was with Forsaken back in 2018, and now you're looking at, you, you didn't get the gradual shift from year to year from then to now. You kind of see the stark differences. Their perspective on this is actually kind of interesting. It's like, it's almost like the boiled frog, you know, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, maybe yeah, the people, like maybe the people playing, they were, they've, they haven't really realized how much it's shifting. Like some people will say, well, when they were with Activision, they had support studios that were working on it. And it's like, okay, maybe that works for Shadowkeep and Beyond Light and even Witch Queen to a certain degree, but they're owned by Sony now. Oh, I their forgot about party, that. Sony, I honestly forgot about that. They're a first party Sony studio. They, they make, look at how many people are playing Lightfall right now on Steam. It's over 100,000 people. You're telling me they don't have the money, they don't have the resources, considering how much more expensive this is and how much they're charging for other shit through the in game store for something as simple as item transmog. If you want to get the, if you want to buy the necessary items to do like a transmog for just one set of armor that's ten dollars for one set of armor it's is that is that is that an actual is it just an armor skin or is it actually like an armor set with stats and attributes no 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 it's the it's the resource that you use to trans um transfer a armor piece that you got to become a transmog ornament that you can equip on top of your armor slot to make it look like something else. So it's paying for the ability to have. Yes. And there are ways to grind out it in game. But if you don't want to do that grind to look good, you have to pay $10 for one armor set. And OK, I'm going to be positive for a second here. I'm going to be positive for a second. I think that. People are right about the main story of this expansion not being good. It's not told well. The pacing is all right. But from what I've seen about the stakes that were set at the beginning of the expansion and what has actually happened at the end, people have basically compared the opening cutscene and the ending cutscene, and they basically could have been spliced together and there would have been no difference to what ha- what changed. Like the ending of the opening cutscene has a group of people like in in a ship with the blast shields like going down after an impact the ending cutscene start um starts with that blast shield going up and them seeing the the results of what's happened right after that it's pretty much when you're looking at those complaints yeah not everyone's complaining about the same thing but generally people are upset because this expansion was marketed as basically the event avengers infinity war of the Destiny storyline when really it wasn't. And they got click <laughs> got such and big. Yeah. And now they're saying that no, like a lot of the like exposition to explain some of the stuff that actually happened and to flesh out the lightfall storyline is going to happen in the seasons, which is 
like on one hand, you think, oh, great. So that means that there's going to be more content later on that I can go through. That's that's cool. Two problems with that. One, that's content that's not an expansion right now. So the story itself is incomplete. Two, that's not content that's going to be available for free. That's st- when I say seasonal, I mean, you have to have the season pass for that season. Or if you want to see the entire story um, leading up to the next expansion, that means you need to have bought the deluxe edition for a hundred bucks. All right, let me, let me make sure I understand this. So like the, the comparison that we talk about most, com- most frequently is Final Fantasy 14, where if you yes. buy Endwalker, it tells a story which then continues in the 0.1.2.3 patches. Well, maybe an Endwalker worked a little bit differently, but in Shadowbringers and Stormblood and all those. But you get those patches as long as you have purchased the expansion. So you pay 50 bucks for Stormblood. You get the Stormblood story. But then you get the additional story in the post patches. Yeah, yeah. The well, difference here is the difference here is that you have to pay an additional yeah. premium for that additional story. And then all then you can make the subjective argument that Final Fantasy XIV in general has done seemingly a lot better job telling a whole story within the expansion and not saying what well, we promised we'll we'll elaborate and let and wrap up loose ends post expansion. Yeah. And like you can make the argument that well, 14 is a subscription MML. Yeah. That's fair. But on the flip side, you can pay for one month at the expansion's launch, or you can pay for one month at the end of the expansion and just play through all the story in one go so basically just wait for whatever the seasonal content is play it in all one go and then make a judgment call at that point yeah the problem with destiny 2 which this is completely baffling to me those seasons aren't permanent content in the game even though bungie has said that they're no longer going to sunset and vault content i wasn't even thinking about necessarily true that's a weird needle to thread Sorry, yeah, no, I'm talking about seasonal, <laughs> Yeah, the seasonal stuff is also story stuff. If you want to get any of the context in between these expansions, which is a lot of buildup, it's basically like, child, since, since you play 14, the best way I can describe it is, is that unless you were subscribed when patch 5.1 through 5.5 were coming out, you could not access those storylines. As soon as Endwalker came out, those were gone from the game. That That's how Destiny works. So, That's how works. so, so in order to have best, trying to be as positive as possible, if you want to have the best Destiny Two experience, you have to you, pay a hundred bucks at the expansion launch and keep up with the seasonal stuff. It's not just FOMO; it's pay up and play, or you will not see that content whatsoever or the story whatsoever. Because yeah. the story is only at its best when you include the seasonal content. You have to pay for the seasonal content, and you have to make sure you don't miss before it gets vaulted. That's a lot yeah. of footnotes. Yeah, that's like yeah, that's, that's a needle like, you have to thread in order to get your best experience of Destiny Two. Well, as a yeah. new, player, you would never get the full experience then. Yeah, you would never get the full experience. It's already impossible. That ship has sailed. Like it's there's a lot of great things about destiny Two. the gunplay. Everyone will tell you about the gunplay. The gameplay itself is really good. The raids are great. The dungeons are great, but there's so many asterisks and it's, and it's weird because if there wasn't all of this baggage, I feel like I could be a lot more positive about this. Like destiny has changed since I played, since I last played it. First off, like it's way more of an RPG this time. Cause like, obviously you had the stats with the armors and the guns and whatnot before, and you had subclasses you could change. It would have slightly different abilities, 
now there's a lot of different stuff. Like you can, there's like a bunch of different grenade types you can change. There's different like sorts of melee abilities you can swap out. There's like a whole armor mod and like weapon mod system that gives you specific buffs to like completely change your play style. So there's like a real build craft to it. And especially for the high difficulty content, there's like, there's an insane amount of variety for what you can do for like what sort of builds you can make and what you want to prioritize and how you play the game. And this is even the simplified version. Apparently in Witch Queen, it was even more complicated. So it's like, I know people that play this game. It's their comfort game. They have several thousand hours in this game. They love it. And I'm not going to say the wrong. It's just as someone that played when, when the only way to put it, Someone that the last time they played was when the actual new content and the content pipeline was at its best. Coming back in now is like, yes, there's a lot of aspects of this. This is better. There's a lot of quality of life features. The the like gameplay, like the RPG gameplay of it is actually more fleshed out. And I'm sure that the raids are as great as ever. But then I look at all the monetization, the lack of new, meaningful content that's not locked behind seasonal activities that will be gone when the next expansion comes out. It's like, it, I'm it going sounds like you're this. saying that all like the foundational stuff about the game uh, is good, but it's like a Ferrari in a locked garage. It's just like, I would love to love this game, but there's just I can't because of the framework around it. Yeah. And it's like, now that I have the seasonal stuff, I'll keep playing it but i'm never gonna pay for this game because quite frankly it's like it doesn't feel like it respects its players time or money <laughs> and that's some it's just there's no other way to put it it's man it's so many people love this game and i genuinely and i genuinely wanted to see what they loved about it. and i think i can but it's like the people that actively play this game it feels like they're either blind to its issues or because they're so used to it. It just has kind of been dulled to them. They've gotten used to it. And it's like, I don't want to insult anyone that enjoys the game. If you enjoy the game, you do you. Obviously, even like using the framework, I'm saying, yes, from an MMO framework, maybe it's not a lot of content. But on, on the flip side, from a, a first-person shooter framework, maybe it's better. Because you get the campaign, you get a whole new zone to, to, to roam through, you get a raid, you get a strike. And then you get seasonal stuff throughout the year. It's like from that framework, it's like, well, the campaign's like four or five hours long, which is about average for like a first person shooter campaign for like a Call of Duty or something. Then you get all the technical changes. You get the raid, you get the new areas. It's like if that's the framework you're using, then sure, I can see why people are perfectly fine with the content they're getting. But from an MMO framework and from someone that played Destiny when it was treated more like an MMO with its content pipeline, it's just like I'm looking at this and it's like, why am I paying more for less? <laughs> and to, Why and am I pay I'm yeah. trying to be like, uh, I don't want to just paint with too broad a brush and be like, anyone who plays this game and enjoys it is a mark. And I know you've been very careful to, to clearly state that you're not saying that. My guess is based on everything that you said with how foundationally this game has, you know, really good gameplay systems and like the, the potential is there. It seems like current players of the game, and I've seen this playing games like Guild Wars 2 and even Fantasy Star, even Fallout 76 back in the day, where you, you want to see, and you can see glimmers of when that potential is reached, and you're, and you're holding on, you're saying, like, I know that they can do great things, because in certain contexts and in certain places, they've done it, but then you have releases like this, where seemingly 
they don't. And you and you were kind of like, well, I, I know they can, but they haven't here. When are they going to do it again? Yeah, that's my thing again. Yeah, again, I'm going to keep playing it. I'm going to see maybe like I, I don't want to be that guy, but like with how big the backlash has been about this expansion. Maybe it will be a wake up call. I don't know. I'm not going to get my hopes up considering that that's how like there's been several occasions in Destiny's history where it seemed like there was a wake up call from Destiny 1's base game to the Taken King where everyone loved that or Destiny 2's base game to Forsaken and everyone loved that. It's like but we're at, we're after that point and it feels like from a content perspective, from a new meaningful content perspective, this is the game at its worst at least as far as like value for money and again different people are going to have different value criterion for this some people are going to care way more about the new subclass and the build craft stuff and that's fine it's just it's it's hard for me to square that circle as someone that has been a lapsed player and has been lapsed specifically because they've removed content i paid for already twice now because they already removed half of forsaken's content and just thinking, okay, these expansions are super small now. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's greed. I don't know if it's spaghetti code. Because again, like one of the reasons they gave for getting rid of some of that content was that they needed to make room for it. And looking at some of the activities in Lightfall, there's a new activity called Terminal Overload. But playing it, it's like this is a lot like escalation protocol from year one from Mars. And it's like I don't know if it's just a case where it's like they're adding as much content as they can before the game just falls apart. I don't know. I just it, it's tough. It's tough. But uh, well, it, you know, that's it's been, it's been a few years since we checked in on Destiny 2. We're tr trying to be as, you know, even keeled and as comprehensive as we can. And it'll be interesting to see as you continue to play through this. Now that we've kind of gotten the framework out of the way of like the state of the game, at least or your opinion as a lapsed player, you know, hopefully we can come back in a week or so. And if you talk about your experience with Lightfall, you can tell us, you know, candidly, of course, what your thoughts are throughout as you play through the expansion. Yep. I kept a little bit of time here to potentially talk about, of course, the most recent major release for our site's coverage, Octopath Traveler 2. Of course, last week we were able to get Cullen Black and uh, Quinton O'Connor as two people who had been able to play through the game completely for their respective outlets, RPG site in Cullen's case, and was it the gamer for uh, for Quinton? Uh, I think all of us here have been in the process of playing through it from the release, not without not with early access. I believe you two are a little bit further than I am in Octopath Traveler Two. I just recently got all eight characters. So I've done all the all the chapter ones, and I'm kind of just going through and messing with the different path actions and trying to undertake a few of the side quests. I know that Chow has been working on throwing up a few guides up on the site for different side quests and how like the inventor works and a few of the other sub jobs and things like that. Since we haven't heard from him in a bit, maybe we'll just hand it off to Chow. I know you've been putting some time into Octopath Traveler 2. My impression is, is that you're enjoying it quite a bit, but what are your thoughts on it? I think the biggest change is the combat speed. I think that's, that's what makes this game more engaging for me because I feel like a game that has so much random encounters it's like once you you just need some way to like get through that faster. <laughs> this game has that option. Probably that's why it feels like a much better experience than the first game so far. And not just that, I think the path action, like with having a 
both night and day cycle makes it much more interesting on how you approach the game. I think those are the major key factors of why the second game just naturally feels better. I know it's hard to explain why it's better, because there isn't much change from the second game to the first one, but I don't know. I'm just saying it's just overall, it's just a lot better. Well, we kind of talked last week about how all of the changes between Octopath Traveler 1 and 2 are tweaks. They're not overhauls, they're not world-shaking, but they tweaked the fact that the combat works a little bit differently with the latent powers and the, and the battle speed. They tweaked how the path actions work with the night and the day systems. They tweak things and kind of each individual one is hard to judge on its own, but as a, as a, you have to look at it more holistically as a collective whole. I really just kind of enjoy, and there was a little bit of this in Octopath Traveler 1 too as well, but I really kind of enjoy, and I think a lot of people are having this, just going throughout the town and trying to get all the information, find all the hidden items, steal all the items or mug all the items. And yeah, even the little girls, uh, the little berries aren't safe. Yeah, but, and there are, so sometimes it's easiest to steal an item. Sometimes the item's hard to steal. Money is not too hard to come by in this game. Sometimes it's better just to bribe the item off them or, or, or steal it or fight them for it and just break them to get the information. So it's really kind of like, I've been going to bars pretty frequently or inns, I guess or taverns, changing out my party, seeing, you know, making making sure that I'm going through all the towns at the daytime, at nighttime. And one thing that's actually also, and I mentioned this slightly last time, is the fact that in night, the night and day system gives a little bit more character to the world where you'd be like, oh yeah, this person was present in this place at daytime. It's kind of, it's kind of silly to be like, oh, I guess they've already stolen from this guy. Oh, right. It's because this is the person that's normally at this place in, in the daytime and I've already talked to them. So it's a little bit of a backwards way of realizing like what the little the little tiny little NPC stories and things that you can read through as you read through their bios as you scrutinize them or as you um you know intimidate them and things like that. I saw I saw James kind of poking at a few different little the the understated stories that you can kind of find if you really read through the different bios as you go from throughout the town. Yeah, there's some really interesting ones. Like there's one of them. It's like you go upstairs. And there's like this guy trying to kill his grandfather. And you read the line, it's like, oh, he's a secret assassin and he's going to be the next successor who can successfully kill his grandfather. And with this information in mind, you can also recruit the grandfather, too, as an NPC. And his grandfather yeah. is like super OP, you know? I think it's no kind of fun that you can, you can have quite a posse following you because you can get like your four characters. If you've got Ochette, you get her familiar with her and you can get someone else following you. So you can get like a, a whole posse uh, following you. Can you can get more than that. Like you can get up to four other people following you if you like take advantage of the different path actions. And yeah, in fact, there's like even a side quest in in like uh, one of the uh, eastern continent towns where there's like a giant sword, basically like an Excalibur. And you talk to someone and says, man, you have a lot of people there, but I think you need a bit more if you want, want to be able to pull that out. Which if you get like all eight people, then I assume you can actually just pull it out. So oh, let's see. So you got, you got. Oh, no, not quite. You actually need a pickaxe. It's not a, it's not eight people, but, but this, uh, I like the idea though of having eight people. So you could get Oshet. Well, it gives people meat. You can have are you sure That's not. A, did you try with eight people? I think that might be another possibility because they like be, there could be because a lot of get, have multiple get, solutions. Like there's one of them. There's this lady that wants to get rid of this necklace because it, it reminds her of her ex. So you could steal the the necklace from her to complete the quest so she forgets about her ex or you could look for her ex and bring the ex and have them make up and and change the course of the quest yeah i think i think the intended thing was to get like eight people 
in a group to grab it because like the NPC for the sword in question says, I think you don't quite have enough people, which implies that if you bring more people, you would be able to pull it out of the stone. Oh. So. This is part of the arms master quest, so I think you should do that one. It's quite interesting. How are we feeling about the storytelling in this game so far? Because I, I, I like it a lot, and I think that even like it's one of those things where it's like a dif- the difference between like character storytelling and like world building. I think, I think for me, what really helps make the stories feel more grounded is the fact that the world itself feels like legitimately like an actual place and. The fact that you can have all these little pieces of information by like inquiring with people throughout the world and you can find little connections like you can like even if the game doesn't outright tell you it like a Xenoblade title, you can make those little connections between groups of people all the way across the world. And it just makes things feel more grounded and alive, even if it's a very static world for the most part, besides like NPCs moving between day and night. And I feel like it makes the stories, even the, like each of the individual stories, have a little bit more oomph them just from that alone. I don't know how you feel, Chow, but that's how I feel. Story for me, it feels like it, it's done before. It's a lot of like stories that, that you've seen before, and then there's a little spin to it. Like, I don't know, like the way I see Oswald's story is, is the oh. fugitive. From- okay, okay, okay. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask, uh, I'm going to ask the peanut gallery here because both of you have, have started Oswald's story. Do you think Harvey actually exists? Um, if you go through chapter two. It, no, 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 no. Don't don't say if you know. Do you think he actually exists? Yes. <laughs> the reason why it's like, OK, I think the reason why everyone got the wrong impression is because, OK, I go in this scene. My wife and and kid is dead. And yet they don't arrest the murderer. They arrest me for some reason. And that's probably why everyone got this theory. Does this guy actually exist or was Oswald hallucinating this entire time? I do like that theory. Like his story reminds me of The Fugitive. Have you ever seen the movie The Fugitive? Then there's a spin of like the Big Bang Fury. And because these are like scientists that are talking and debating all the time. So it kind of reminds me they took that approach and Full Metal Alchemist. Blend those three in and you get Oswald's story. Uh, What is it? Like their names? Are they... Are they just taken from like random American pop culture? Like the guy that shot JF Kennedy was some dude named Lee Oswald Harvey. Is it a reference to that? Uh, yeah, that's also well. There was some sort of murder, like Harvey Oswald. So I think that's why people got the got the idea that it's like, oh, I think he's an hallucination because it's like two ha- like two personalities or something like that. So. But uh. I th- obviously, I think they obviously wanted to spell Octopath, and from there, just kind of went with what they could do. Yeah, but their main villain is a guy named Harvey. <laughs> Blames true. on a guy named Harvey, so it'll be like, it's like, it can't be this coincidence, you know? Yeah. I, think, I think it could be a coincidence. I will say that, like, I think just by happenstance, the last two characters, I started on the Eastern Continent with Throne. I thought her story was pretty good. I thought a lot of the stories over there were really good. I liked, especially liked how Temenos' story started. And then when I went to the Western continent, I thought Particio's was pretty good. I thought uh, Hikari's had a really good setup and really good music and just really good atmosphere, but Mugen is like a whirling mustached villain character that like is seems really, really cartoony. And like, oh, like, okay. Like, all their stories are like done before. Like Hikari's story, it reminds me of Free Kingdom version of Dune or something like that, you know? 
there's a guy that gets exiled from his kingdom and he lives in the desert kingdom. <laughs> now he's going to come back with an army to get his kingdom back, right? It's like, it's due, technically, right? So a lot of these stories are like done before. So I, th- I think I think Hakari's story would have worked better, at least his chapter one, if Ritsu's... Okay, so this is a spoiler for Hikari chapter one. So it's like the premise of this story. Ritsu turns on Hikari near the end of his chapter, but like you don't, you didn't get to learn who Ritsu was. He becomes arrogant for like no real reason. I think it would have worked better if he was like reluctantly trying to like, like he felt like he had like torn loyalties and was reluctantly having to face Hikari, but instead he's like becomes an asshole for no reason. Not only that, he becomes an asshole who's never been able to beat Hikari so that when he loses again, it's like, oh, surprise. So I don't like online that kind of tells you why you switch. He just wants to be famous. Run yeah, he basically, he basically just says, like, yeah, if I serve you, his, if I serve Mugen in your head, I'll get all the recognition I want. I think they could have done something a little bit more nuanced there. Yeah, they could have yeah. a little bit more build up. A lot of things just kind of happen suddenly. Like, these story beats are not, like, it's not going to, like, blow your minds out. I think it just has, it's just, they're just doing, like, a very safe approach of what's done before, and then trying the best to execute it. In- yeah, I don't think, I don't think they're bad stories by any means. I do think the Patricio stuff is probably the most interesting it gets with these setup. I think he's actually like my favorite character out of the eight. Like, yeah. he, is, he is definitely my favorite. You know, I, like, I, I love how s- some people are just like, I, I hate his accent. It's like, how dare you? <laughs> also, also his, his latent, latent action or latent power is called Hooden Holler. And I think that's just neat. <laughs> Uh, uh, the Mugen is also the most overpowered class in this game. It is absolutely bonkers what you could do with it. Well, that's how it was in the first game too, if I remember right. Yeah. Yes, Tressa with with Rune Lord is the god of the first game. The merchant girl becomes god at the end. Yeah. And the other story that I did at the very end that I thought was um just a little bit down compared to the others, only only early in their story was Casty's story. Obviously, the the Casty um, gets very good later. Yeah, on. I think I think it's Casty and Agnia's first chapters are a bit more low key than the rest, but I think that's actually good because like so many of the other stories are very like high octane or very intense right from the word go. So I think having even just one or two of the stories be a bit more low key at the start is actually a good good call. Because it makes it so that not every single story has the same intensity from the word go. Well, I really I like Agnea's Ag- Agnea's story. I, I thought it was really good. Her story. I I like hers. It's just kind of like I don't know. It's like one of those like feel good like inspiration stories. So you know? many. Pretty much every other story in this game is depressing or has some world ending stakes and like. Well, Arsha has world-ending stakes but her story yeah. is like I- i'm just gonna hunt monsters that eat food That's yeah it. It, yeah but it's like every other story is intense and there's like something at stake and agnia is just here being like i'm gonna be a star and it's like you go girl <laughs> you like you need some levity in this in this goddamn <laughs> game the, 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 the only thing about cassie's story that i didn't quite like is i thought the first chapter covered a lot of ground that i think would have worked better if it was over like three chapters not because the pacing was too quick, but because it's like, who put you on the skiff? Who, who, like, why are you, how do you end up here? What's the goal? And then, like, uh, it answers a lot of those questions immediately at the end of chapter one. Not all of them, 
but some of them that I felt like it could have held off for a bit. I think the part that kind of drives me nuts about that story is more like how fast people 360 around her. I'll be like, you're you're one of those clerics. You're evil. It's like, oh, wait, I'm sick. Can you help us? And then their, their opinions just instantly switch over so fast in like less than 10 seconds. You know, I, I think it would have been better with a little bit proper build up instead of. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, I'll have to see like how what they cover in chapters, you know, three and four of her story. But yeah, chapter one just felt like it was paced too quickly. But these are nitpicks. Yeah. Like in general, I feel like I'm really enjoying the story. It just happens to be that the two characters I got last were the two stories setups that I liked the least. But that's just me, you know, just me just trying to be honest. I'm just, I'm really enjoying just going back to old towns and inspecting people and seeing, oh, this person's from New New Desti or whatever that Corona City was called. I've been there. Oh, this is uh, this person is from the other the other towns in the area that I've been to, and I've, I'm starting to piece together like how these places came to be, and there's like there's world building behind the scenes, and I'm just really kind of enjoying that and the nonlinearity of it, the fact that I can kind of have different options now because I started out with a pretty railroaded. I want to do everyone's chapter one so that I can get all the characters on my team and learn all the path actions, etc. And now at this point, it's like, not only can I just decide, do I want to do Oswald's chapter three or do I want to do Throne chapter two because she's my protagonist? But you have the options between those. Like I can go after mother or father. Partitio's got a few options. I believe Cassie has two options. And I don't know how much that'll really matter in the long run, but at least the perception is, is that it's this wide open world that I can go, go wherever I want with you know, whatever suits my fancy, which I really just like that feeling. I think how I played the game kind of reminds me of ProZD's video with the pine cones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the optional shit. And now it's like fighting all the boss. I just like one shot them. So it's like. Well, and also, just as I've been exploring, one thing that I don't quite know how they fit in yet is I go off the beaten path and I find I, I find this little boat kayak area and I go out and I find this dungeon. This dungeon's level 16. I'm, I'm about level 16 now. So I could just. Now that I have a full party, I could just decide to explore that place. What am I going to find there? I have no idea. Maybe a hidden job, maybe a, a special weapon. Like the fact that there's not only do you have the cross paths, which I haven't encountered yet, the multiple paths for the main stories, but there's even if you don't have any interest in that, there's I could still just wander around and just let Wanderlust take the wheel and just explore. And that's just it's been a few years since Octopath Traveler one, but I just don't feel like having that nearly as strongly in that game. That game felt in my memory, at least, a lot more railroaded. So I'm just, I'm really glad that this game has kind of stepped out and away from that a little bit. You know, there's one thing that, that kind of tells me about Octopath. It, it reminds me of, like, Romancing Saga, like, mostly free, maybe, because of all the wanderlust you could do in this game. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, like, kind of scrutinize Octopath for its story, like the first one, at least. But they don't scrutinize Saga games when Saga games are maybe even more bare-bones than than octopath in my opinion i, well, I like think a lot, i think i, I think most mo- most of the saga game scrutiny gets from how little instruction you get yeah yeah it's it's a, like running into a brick wall and it's it's not not user friendly not user friendly it's like you're playing a romantic saga that has all the instructions on where where possibly site of interest are obviously mm-hmm. there's a lot of hidden stuff in mm-hmm. this game like there's this one hidden dungeon i would never think about it until someone mentioned this word's like, oh, you could do that. Oh, it's like, damn. It's like, I, I never even think of that would be possible, you know? No, I really like the idea that this can be a game where you... I, I know some people get frustrated by this or feel like it's inconvenient, but I actually kind of like games where you, without expecting it, you find something that you missed. Like, oh, I could have done this forever ago, but I missed it. Because it's just a little bit out of the way and you have to kind of, you know, 
be a little bit nosy and snoop around a bit to find this hidden dungeon. And I kind of like the idea. I don't like thing. I don't like when things are missable, but I like when you can kind of go back and say like, oh, this was this was an option to me forever ago. And I'm just now coming back to it. And the game is still saying, yep, you can still do this and get something out of it. I really kind of just enjoy the nonlinearity of that. I think that's what's annoying about Trails games in general, because in Trails game, it's like, oh, these areas are one time visit. Now you miss it. Now you're. Nursing. Well, yeah, that, that's that's the course. The, that's the key part is do you feel like you're going to be penalized for not talking to every single person after every major story cutscene because you're going to miss something. And in the, you know, two decades ago was tales of games and now it's trails games that seem to do that the most where that's why your guides get so many views. Chow. Bob, <laughs> wow. wow, I add all of them together. I think there's like over 40 million views. How's your, uh, how's your, as your guide, uh, rebound. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and I know uh, one of someone on site, Scott, I believe, has been playing that. I've, I'm not sure if it's for our site or for someone else, but he's I know he's a pretty big Trails fan. I don't know if he's played Azure before, but I know he's been really enjoying it a lot with the um, uh, with the new release coming up. the uh, The last game that we have earmarked here, it's kind of kind of interesting. This is just serendipity. We talked obviously unexpectedly about the newest expansion to Destiny Two. Chow has put on here that he is playing Tales of Destiny Two. Now, of course, Chow, I have to ask, this is the real Tales of Destiny 2, or is this Tales of Eternia? This is the real Destiny 2. All right, this is the one that us, us English speakers aren't aren't privy to. So, this is a direct sequel to Destiny. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it was the only, I think it was the first Tales of, like, direct sequel that was made before Exilia came out, I think. Or is it, no, wait, there was Symphonia 2. We, we don't <laughs> talk about Symphonia 2, I guess. <laughs> So this is the first direct sequel to a Tales of game that came out for the PS2 back in the day. The reason why I'm revisiting this game is because I bought this uh, this emulation device called the Retroid Pocket Free Plus, and I'm just kind of like playing through it again. Like I, I have played this game a lot of times before, beaten it several times. Uh, it's a very good game, in my opinion. It's not the best. It's kind of like how how do I say it? There there is. Like, there's a time travel stories, and you know how time travel stories goes. You either break the game, or or it's okay. You know, it's it depends on how how the setup is approached, and you either love it or you hate hate it because it has a time time travel story involved in this game. So, to start off with the premise first, you you play as this kid. Where you start? I just want to ask, like, have you you've played this before, and you're just replaying it, or what made you decide to play through this? playing it on on it because i want to test how 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 well this thing emulates on on this thing and i'm okay. just emulating the psp version technically the psp version in my opinion is superior to the ps2 version if you play it in a bootleg format if you don't play it in a bootleg where you buy it in the disc then the ps2 version is superior because this game has a lot of like was it during battles if you play on like the actual psp umd there will be a lot of loading times It'll be like you do a special attack, your character will start lagging to load in like the cut-ins or you know stuff like that. It'll it'll just kind of like ruin your experience. It'll versus in the PS2, like the battle is always smooth. And but if you play it, you know through illegal means like emulation or or through through the memory stick, then you can bypass all this problem and it'll play just like the PS2 version. So that's kind of like how how you play this game, in my opinion. I go with the PSP version because there's a little bit more content in in the game. Uh, 
there is like one i think there's like one bonus dungeon where you get to fight the secret boss which is leon magnus he's he's a is a trademark character in this game and he's actually he actually appears in this game's plot as well so uh well let's just go with the premise with the story so this is a direct sequel to tales of destiny okay so in tales of destiny you play as this unlikely hero that goes on and save the world which is a guy named stan and when he saved the world 18 years later he and his wife like uh basically yeah you you already know who 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 ends up to be his wife if you play the first game basically starts an orphanage and that kid uh basically for some reason their kid has a different last name <laughs> than than the main character from the original which confused a lot of people that play the game the first time it'll be like his name is Kyle Dunamis it's like why isn't his last name Kyle Alarion because that's the main character's last name from the original right so and the reason why he has the last name Dunamis is because their orphanage is called the Dunamis Orphanage. So they, that's why his name is Kyle Dunamis. It's not, it's not like he's not related to the main character original. It's, it's supposed to have his surname after the orphanage for some stupid reason. Is that, is that, is that meant to be like a surprise to learn that he's the, the previous character's no, it's, son? It's not, no, it's not like quite, it's not even like a surprise. They already like spoiled it in like the first couple seconds of the game when it starts. Because the main character has like a ego complex, he wants to prove himself to be a big hero like his dad is. Like he'll be like, he'll be like flexing around his friends, like, oh, "Hey, I am gonna be a big hero, like Stan. Stan's blood in me. I have what it takes to be a big hero." You know, that's kind of like this protagonist. He's kind of whiny. He's kind of annoying, but he just. I think the reason why I like you kind of like all the characters in this game because the voice acting is really good, even though it's in Japanese only. Uh, like I think this game has probably one of the best voice casts for for its time. Like this main character is voiced by Leluge from Kogius. Obviously, he's not using the Leluge voice. He's using like his kind of like kind of like as like a teenage bratty kid kind of kind of voice. So it's not the cool voice that everyone's used to nowadays. Um, but the premise basically starts yeah. with. Hey, Chow, sorry to interrupt, but just the way you're describing the Tales of Destiny 2 premise, I haven't played Destiny or Destiny 2, but it, it just reminds me of um, Tales of Phonia 2 being another direct sequel starring Emil, who is voiced, I believe, by Johnny Young Bosch, but he doesn't use his normal voice, he uses his wimpy voice, so that's kind of just reminding me of the same thing here, which we're talking about. Well, uh, this protagonist is not really wimpy. He's actually quite badass, in my opinion. I think he just sounds annoying, but he's pretty badass from the shit he does. But basically, the storyline goes from his basically his older adopted brother comes in, like from the orphanage comes in because he he basically left to kind of like join this army, which is part of this church group, and he came back and he tells the main character, "Hey, you know what? I got some insider information when I was working at this church group that there is this giant ball of lens in this room. If we could go back there and you know." steal this lens get it back home will be filthy rich and orphanage will be saved or something like that because their orphanage that they live in is so run down there's like water leaking all over the place you see like a bucket there it's like it's the most run down orphanage that you can think of right so the main character gets permission from his mom to go traveling you know like one of the beginning of the game he gets in an argument with his mom because he's like hey you know what you and your dad used to go on adventure when you're 15 why can't i go out and travel the world and she's like, it's too dangerous for you. And it's kind of like, they kind of start to, to like show the scene 
where the main character has this dream where the main character from the original game gets murdered by this dude. And then they'll tell you that, oh, he's not dead. He's just out on an adventure. So they, they could like this plot to you. It's like, is the main character from the original dead or is he alive? And I like, I think the answer is kind of obvious because a lot of people are kind of like, you know, telling you it's like, it's, you know, why are they like hiding this information from him? So, you know, it's like your speculation is more leaning to like, he's, he's probably dead, you know, kind of, kind of get right. But anyways, they go to the place to find the giant ball lens. But instead of getting the lens, the lens break and shatter and a girl comes out of it. And the girl basically says to him, are you the hero? And, you know, and he's like, yeah, I, I'm definitely a hero. I have the blood of Stan in me. And, and it's like, yeah, you're not the hero I'm looking for. And she just ditches her. I mean, she just ditches him and just goes off on her own. And then they get captured by the church people because the church people are still, you know, trying to get the runes there. And then he meets this guy with a mask. This guy is actually, it's really obviously when you see who he is wearing this mask. This guy is, uh, what is it? He basically said he's nameless, and the main character decided to call him Judas for some reason, <laughs> because he is known as the traitor in the original game. It's it's like the Char thing in Gundam, even though it's like he came in a disguise in the sequel. It's like you know it's him. <laughs> it's so obvious, right? Uh, but anyways, the whole storyline goes of him trying to prove to that girl that he is a hero, and as the course that girl, like the identity of that girl, becomes really important because. They basically come in. Um, there's other girl that that influenced the church, and they basically try to create a utopia. And it's basically is the girl that the main character meets. The method is right where human does not need a savior that leads them to a better world, or is the path of like human humanity needs a savior to to be like better. And that's kind of like how the game's like story course goes through. It's about these two ideology clashing and a lot of time travel is involved because of these two girls are basically they're basically vessels of god and they can like control you know time and shit to like uh, be honest Chow, it sounds like it sounds like a typical fails plot but with time travel and you know what yes i'm all for that it's a, that sounds a good time travel. you know how time travel stories usually kind of like end up right so mm. but but i think the best thing to introduce in this game is this villain called barbados He's basically this dude from the Sordian era. The Sordian is a, is a weapon in the original game. It's like a talking sword. And with the talking sword, they basically led this like giant scale war fighting these people that basically live in the sky because they were dictators or something like that. And they basically, there was this one war criminal, the guy that betrays everyone and kills him. And somehow he is alive in the modern era and he came in trying to kill all the heroes of the story. And this guy is voiced by Cell from, from Dragon Ball. So he has a Wakamoto's voice. Very, very over-the-top villain. And the main character constantly kicks his ass for some luck or or some, I don't know, some kind of form. That's why I say the main character is badass, because he's able to stand up to this guy. He is, like, literally a very difficult boss. This dude is, like, they're throwing a Dark Souls boss at a, Souls game, at a Tales game right from the get-go at you, because this guy is fucking strong as hell. 
and he would like mock you in all kinds of situations. They'll be like, "Ha, huh? <laughs> it's like you want to use an item? Well, I'm just going to use a super movement and instant kill you if you dare to use an item or something like that." You know, he's, he's like that kind of character. And the whole, the most hilarious part about this character is they introduce him into the Tales of Destiny remake as a character, as a secret boss. And there's two versions of it. There is one version where you start botting in the world map. You know, like you set the entire roster to auto. And you use it to grind in the world map, and he'll show up as a secret boss. Like, what the hell are you doing here? And he'll be like this ultra hard super boss that will instantly one shot your party. And people are like trying to find ways to kill him before he one shots the party. And the other method is to fight him into the in the secret dungeon. In the secret dungeon, it, it works like this: if you set the difficulty on easy, he will instantly wipe your entire team. You can't even do anything about it. And well, if you're like some god exploit player, you may be able to like combo him to death and kill him before he's able to do his one shot move. But the intent because is is that he's not like he's, he's not, not to be up. He's not he's not beatable. Mm-hmm. Like his intent it's like fighting like Freya in Valkyrie Profile 2 or Valkyrie Profile as like the hidden boss for fucking up your duties and you get that C ending, you know, it's like he's meant to be like impossible to beat. And <laughs> it's just meant to be like this cool Easter egg of how strong this character is. But let's see. There's one thing I, I always confused me about this game was the battle system. They call it okay. So basically, this is like the it's like imagine playing the old Tales game where you had this giant blue gauge which works as a stamina gauge. They call it spirit gauge for some reason, but it, it looks more like a stamina gauge to me, right? Because every time you hit something, bar starts going down. Next thing you know, it's like, oh, I can't attack anymore because I ran out of stamina. And how the game works is that every time, like, if you could get, like, 100 stamina and you do, like, your combo can extend based on how many times you use it. And that's how your Mystic Art comes from. Because I think this game has, like, the most Mystic Arts. Your Every character has, like, seven Mystic Arts because the Mystic Arts is, like, an extension of their moves. So it'll be like, oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's another Mystic Art, another Mystic Art, you know. Well, and remind me, back in this era of Tales games, this is when the two quote, teams were Team Symphonia and Team Destiny. Yes. And then uh, Team Destiny always had these like more active uh, stamina or MP or mana, whatever you want to call that, replenishment through gameplay, where Team Symphonia did the more basic, you get a TP meter and that's it. I think Symphonia is more on the 3D focus and Destiny mm-hmm. was more focused on the 2D types kind of games because they mm-hmm. did the Tales Rebirth as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like this is the 2D base game, and and was it like, one of the things that makes it kind of like unique for its time is that when you compare it to like Rebirth, Rebirth have like a really cool battle system. It's like uh, imagine playing Guardian Heroes on the Sega Saturn, where you got three different lines and you could go different place, and you could basically do the moves on limited times. Except that if you wait for the gauge to be fully filled out, the moves are like four times as strong. So you want to save your moves instead. So it plays kind of cool, like doing that. Um, I think as time went on, they merged the two teams together and they made Exilia based on the two teams' efforts. So you kind of got like the 3D running around from the Tales of the Abyss. And then you got kind of like a mixture battle system of the Tales of Destiny remake. Yeah, I remember in like the in like the PS3 era, people were still trying to say like, is this a Team Symphonia game or Team Destiny game based on like who was the producer, who was the uh, who was the designer, 
but now it just seems like it's a giant pot and a lot of a lot of the original talent's long gone so at this point it's just tail studio you know what what the sad part about this game is it's like or at least the part after this you know in the tales of destiny remake is in my opinion the greatest tales of game that game is directed by hideo baba who is the producer of Tales of Sestereo, one of the worst Tales games, and he got fired basically from Sestereo, in my opinion. It's like, how did he went from that to this? It kind of boggles my mind, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe and, and, and then he went to Delightworks, right? Or was it Delightworks or somewhere somewhere else? Yeah, he went to Delightworks, but he also mm-hmm. went to Square Enix before that. Oh yeah, I so, forgot about. It. Oh yeah, that Studio Astola or whatever it was. Yeah. That seemed to be. To be fair, Chow, he didn't make anything at Square Enix. Whatever he was working on got canceled, and then he left. <laughs> okay, well, still, like, I don't know. I got insider information. People, people told me that this guy does not know what he's doing. This, they just told me that he was a very good PR guy, but when it comes to game development, this guy is—he does not know. Jack. Well, to be fair, you do need people that are those good PR guys. That, that's <laughs> from an insider told me <laughs> before that, that worked with him. And I did, uh, I remember we didn't, I don't think we formally reported on this. I think we just tweeted it out, but there is a, like a fan translation group currently working on a Tales of Destiny 2 English patch. I just randomly pulled up their website. The name of the group is Lumina Tales, L-U-M-I-N-A, Tales. And their last update was in November and they're, they're, they're planning for a 2023 release of their English patch. But it's, so it's had no update in a few months, but they're currently apparently trying to look at this year. So maybe we'll see something. Well, if you don't understand Japanese, you could still beat this game without issue because apparently, like every time you go somewhere, there'll be a yellow mark on the world's map to tell you that's your next destination. So yeah. you can like basically know where to go. <laughs> I think it's one of those first Tales games that have one of those where they just point you where the next destinations are. Mm-hmm. Uh what was the last thing I want to mention about this game? There is one secret move in this game that requires being the game three times to use. That also and seems like, very uh, prototypical tales. There was one character, basically, you know, like character I said that was wearing a mask, Judas. He has like this ultimate move, and it only works after you beat the game three times. And even then, this game, this move does not always activate. It is completely RNG on on it being activating, and I've only seen it like twice in my lifetime. I don't know how people were able to trigger it all the time. Well, that's but... that's why YouTube exists. We can we can YouTube games yeah. instead of playing them. Basically, you start to do this combo and it will trigger this mystic art and he'll does like a like a, like a 20 hit more extension to it where he breaks his mask showing he, he's that character from the original game doing this Shock. move, but yeah, but it is RNG. It doesn't always happen. I don't know why, but it just goes that way. And there is also one other ultimate move in this game, which is the Blue Mermaid attack. The Blue Mermaid attack is probably like the ultimate attack in this game, but I don't think I would ever grind that much to ever get to see it, because it works with this one character called Harold, and she basically used this ultimate magic that keeps extending and extending, but you had to use it like 2,000 times, and this magic takes forever to cast. It It takes her probably like a whole minute to cast this magic. But if you can do it like 2,000 times, you can use like the entire full extension of this move. And it's called like the Blue Mermaid Attack. And it will do like 200,000 damage. That, might, that, 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 that reminds me of some old Star Ocean game where it's like this art or ability doesn't get its full power unless you use it a thousand times. And I'm just like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, this is like 2,000 times. So you just YouTube it up to see who is mad enough to grind that that many times because the game doesn't. Well, you could, you could probably tool assist it or something at this yeah. point. 
but like i it's like it's the ultimate attack in this game i also think like one one thing that's really bad about this game is the balance in the game physical attacks becomes completely useless about like at halfway mark and magic attacks like the only way you can kill bosses in this game basically your mat like physical attack does like about 400 damage at by the end game per attack while magic attacks do about 50,000 like 20,000 you know it's like it just goes like the damage is completely screwed the basically the whole reason why you have like the main character is just to distract your opponent like long enough that the people can cast out their magic and kill the bosses it's kind of like the gameplay balance in this game I just hope maybe if there was well, a revision of the game. Well, speaking, speak, speaking of the Trails games that like we were earlier, I do like how I just recently played through all four Cold Steels. I don't remember which is which. Remember, in each game, like, in this one, crafts are overpowered. In this one, arts are overpowered. In this one, crafts are overpowered again. So, I don't know. Balancing a combat-focused RPG is, uh, is tough to do. Well, thank you to both James and Chow for talking about Destiny 2 and Tales of Destiny 2. We'll have to put that into the title in some fashion, somehow. I don't know how yet. Figure it out. Tales of Destiny uh, 2s. There you go. And then uh, we do have a few other article shoutouts that I want to put at least platform here a little bit. We already talked about James's review of Volong Fallen Dynasties up on the site. We mentioned in passing that Chow has been putting up a lot of Octopath Traveler 2 guides up on the site. So hopefully if you're moving around and, ser- and you're playing through that game that you're landing on some of Chow's work on that. And then even though he's not here to speak to it, Adam did speak to his playthrough recently of Redemption Reapers. This is the strategy RPG made by some veteran Fire Emblem developers Adam was able to speak to on the podcast last week. Adam wrote up his thoughts and put it in the review up on the site. And so if you've already listened to last week's episode of the podcast, you probably are kind of aware of his thoughts, but he got it down in written form in that review formally on RPGsite.net. We go into the news part of the podcast here, and we have quite a lot of headlines and some big headlines, though in my, as I was trying to plan and prepare for this podcast, a lot of these headlines are a little bit thin, despite what the content is. For instance, the very first headline here is from a recent Pokemon Presents. This is the expected post-launch DLC expansion content for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Similar to what we saw before in Sword and Shield, it is going to be a two-part expansion. Part one is called The Hidden Treasure of Area Zero, Area Zero The Teal Mask launching in fall 2023. And part two is the hidden treasure of Area Zero, the Indigo Disc, launching in winter 2023. So likely early 2024 is my guess. We have a new trailer for this expansion pass announcement for Scarlet and Violet, about two minutes long. However, the trailer itself is like this hybrid live action CG kind of theming trailer, but without gameplay of any sort, which I thought was an interesting take. And then as I read through the the press release for what this trailer or what this expansion pass content is, it's very high level. It's, for instance, they're focusing mostly on the first piece of DLC, the teal mask, talking about how you're going to leave the, the protagonist of Scarlet and Violet will leave the Paldea region, go to a different region, Kitakami. And of course, there's new Pokemon, new legendaries. It talks about if you if you purchase the expansion pass within a window, you get a, a special Hisuian Zoroark and things like that. But it doesn't really talk about in any more detail other than that what the expansion pass contains. I don't know if, James, you've been able to dive through any of the information here. But to me, it just seems like there's really not a whole lot to latch on to other than we know that this year's holiday Pokemon release, as expected, will be an expansion pass content to Scarlet and Violet. 
Yeah, they were very, very light on actual details for what the content will be. They just said there's going to be two halves and that they connect together to tell one story. That is basically it. We do know we will get two new Pokemon. There's one that's like the mask little guy and then, well, no, five new Pokemon because there's like the mask guy and then the three little uh, monkey things. Well, that's similar to the, what we saw with the like the aisles before with like Cub Chew and things like that. Or is it Cub Chew? I forget. I forget who it was. The Cub uh, Fu, I think. And then I forget the uh, Urshifu. Urshifu is the evolution, mm-hmm. I think. And then, of course, they talk about how there are over 200 other Pokemon from other regions that are currently not have not appeared in Scarlet and Violet that will now be available. That was kind of to be expected. Got a few uh, screenshots as well, but uh, most of the screenshots are actually just kind of like either cosmetics for the character or just like artwork of the theming. And the artwork is is fine. But other than that, there's just not a whole lot to latch onto here. But I haven't had a chance to play through Scarlet and Violet to completion yet. It's obviously on my list. Uh, we saw that the last time that they were able to do expansion pass content to a larger game that based on James's impressions of the Isle of Armor and the Isle of what was the other one? Frost. I don't remember what the other one was, but they uh, Isle of Armor and the Crown Tundra. Crown Tundra, that's what it was. They did pretty well there, so hopefully they'll be able to kind of leverage their experience with what they did with Sword and Shield to have a similar kind of step up here, because we do know, obviously, that Scarlet and Violet did not launch in the best state. Well, the thing is, is that Scarlet and Violet's issues aren't with the games themselves, it's with the technical aspects of it. And of course, there have been like there have been a lot of rumor mongering about uh, and I guess it almost feels silly to say now, like a switch successor, because like, yeah, people are rumor mongering about that. It's it's got to line up with the Pokemon stuff. But there have been rumor mongering that it was going to line up with other things in other years. So we don't know anything. But it's the 4chan it, it, leaks. It's like you you say a million things, obviously. Well, no, no. Now, this time, this time, it's a bit different because a prominent Chinese hardware where leaker. Uh, uh, basically, his stuff about the Switch successor got scrubbed because of like a uh, co- like a copyright notice or something. Nintendo like Ninjas. Yeah. So it's like uh, we know that obviously the Nintendo Switch successor has been in the works. Like it's so it's either going to be holiday season or it's going to be sometime next year. I think it's probably going to be early next year, but we'll see. And obviously, we'll share when we know more information about this expansion pass content. But right now, it's just kind of a uh, kind of thin. Not a whole lot to dive into here. We talked about either last week or the week before the somewhat leaked but still appreciated announcement of a new remaster coming to Nintendo Switch for the Baton Kaitos One and Two duology. And during the announcement of that remaster, we had learned about a few of the details about what they would entail, including no English dub, unfortunately. But Bonnie Nameco has basically detailed out what Byte and Kaito's 1 and 2 HD remaster will have. This include and a lot of kind of the cheap parameters that you sort of see on a lot of these remasters. We saw them on Chrono Cross Radical Dreamers, for instance. There's a no, no random encounters toggle, an instant KO toggle, game speed toggles from 100 to 300%, same with battle speed, auto battle mode. There is a new game plus mode, which is pretty interesting, and also a new game minus mode. So it is kind of nice to see that they included that for those that want more of a challenge. Not only do you have the cheat features, but you do have kind of a new hard mode with the game. Still, obviously, no new news on uh, nothing has changed with regards to the, the, to the English dub being removed. So 
seems like that will still be the case for that, which for a lot of people are kind of saying for the original game, that's not too big a loss, but for Origins, I know some people were really nostalgic about that performance. So unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be here, but... I don't think they could get those voice casts back, or well, not like the voice cast back, but getting the license to get something that back to Apple Voices. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be a nightmare to deal with. And that it's still slated for uh, for this summer at some point, yeah, and is a uh, Switch exclusive, of course. Our next set of news posts here are all about Square Enix, Final Fantasy 16, and a little bit of Forspoken. So. There, this week was the big, and I know a lot of people were expecting this, I believe a lot of it came out on February 28th, last day of the month, a lot of websites basically had their big hands-on preview info dumps for the upcoming Final Fantasy 16, which of course is slated to release in late June this year. Uh, just to be honest, we did not get hands-on access ourselves, but we and Alex made sure to basically wrap up all the key features that we saw presented from other outlets, including some of our friends at RPG Fan and a few other, a few other websites. Some of this stuff is kind of like little ancillary things. For instance, Final Fantasy 16 purportedly has 11 hours of story cinematics. The story cinematics are all done in engine. We have a little bit of, of interview dialogue from Yoshida talking about how one of their aspirations when they were putting this game together is they wanted to make sure that the cinematics tied really with the gameplay, that they didn't Basically, anything that you see in a cinematic is something you can do in-game. They didn't want to make it be kind of basically the CG era, the PS1, PS2 you know, era of Square, Soft, Square Enix. That's not what they were going for here. It's all an engine. It's all representative of stuff you can do with the combat system. Speaking of the combat system, we have, of course, already knew that they have talent behind like the Devil May Cry series on the game. We talked about the inspirations for the game and the, the one that they really targeted as being kind of one of their... One of the totem poles was the recent God of War games, which some people have been more excited about than others in terms of whether or not this is a classic Final Fantasy game or not. And of course, there was a lot of discussion in social media space in our own comment section on our website about the use of the acronym JRPG. And I don't know how to tackle that can of worms because it is something you have to be cautious about. I will just say what Yoshi P said, and I will all give some context for people that maybe weren't listening or watching games media around the time frame that he mentioned. Basically, during an interview that uh, Yoshi P had with SkillUp, uh, SkillUp in response to something that Yoshi P said about how the action game genre had advanced and had become kind of the norm for games overall, which I think is a relatively fair like assessment. Like lots of games are action games these days. Yes, yes, Yoshi P. If he thought that that meant that he felt like the JRPG genre, quoting skill up, hadn't advanced in the same way, and apparently this struck a bit of a sour note with Yoshi P. And unbeknownst to really anyone before this interview he outright said that there are people within square and apparently like like after this came out people looked in receipts other people have said this within square and without that at least some japanese developers considered the term jrpg to be somewhat discriminatory because they felt like at least when they became aware of the term around 15 years ago. So basically the tail end of the sixth generation of consoles. So PS like late PS2, early PS3, 
it was used in a sort of context that was deliberately, in their opinion, othering them. And there have been receipts that people have brought up. Even just today, there's this, like, even as we're speaking right now, there's this embarrassing stuff going on with uh, Adam Sessler, where it's like an old X-Play review for Baden Kaito's Origins, funnily enough, um, had, like, the opening of the review was incredibly xenophobic. And, and, and the entire review was incredibly belittling. Like, even if they didn't like the game, there was no reason it needed to go this, like, disrespectful with how it, like, stated its criticisms. And you have, like, Sessler doubling down, and you have, like, other examples of it. It's just, it's been a mess and a bit of a re-examination for a lot of people. It, is the term JRPG appropriate? Should even be using it? Because in... In Yoshi P's own words, or the whole thing is they didn't like it because it felt like it was boxing them in. It was like othering them. It was making it so it's like we make RPGs and we're not trying to be a JRPG, quote unquote. We're just trying to make something of our own, make something unique, different. And it's kind of fascinating because it's like, I don't know how much you two saw of it, but I remember when I was growing up, like around that time. There was absolutely a stigma against Japanese developed games. It was like around the time like Phil Fish was was in vogue and there was stuff like that. And you'd have all these comments and reviews, even in like from like respected, otherwise respected reviewers and outlets that would be using the term Japanese as synonymous with outdated, old, quirky and archaic was it, a big word that came up. A yeah, lot and it time. feels like. And I'm reminded of like all of these different like instances that happened then. And at the time, I thought that was a little bit weird, but like people have talked about it since. It's like, Dad, that was kind of like xenophobic. That was kind of weird. That was like uncalled for. And now we outright have confirmation from, well, apparently, like, well, there was other the comfort. Yeah. It's like we had like Takahashi from Monolith Soft even saying as much when they were going through developing like Xenoblade and like an old like interview of him. We got Yoshi P saying it. We have the director of Octopath Traveler saying something, something akin to it. And now we have all these receipts of, yeah, actually, some, maybe, maybe some coverage of Japanese um, developed RPGs uh, around that time frame were just straight up racist. And it's kind of weird to, to, to have to go through that reexamination. Well, the thing is, is that even without this more recent context of the phrase, JRPG has always been kind of a very wobbly term in the first place. What does it mean? And I will say it outright, we at RPG site or anyone, there's no one person that is the arbiter for what does it mean? Does it mean a game that's an RPG made in Japan? Does it mean it's is it an RPG with a certain set of parameters? You ask three people that you're going to get three different answers. And I'm not going to pretend to say this is right, those are wrong. And one thing that I saw Alex in a different forum communicating is one thing that does make this difficult is that as games have become more global products, a lot of times when we get press releases, games both big and small will gleefully say this is a JRPG or a JRPG inspired game. Sometimes when you get like an indie product that's from South American studio or European studio, but they're deliberately going for a certain sort of RPG that is a hallmark to the fifth generation, sixth generation, whatever you want to call it, they'll use the term themselves, JRPG. So, of course, when we report on it, we'll just say, as we share the press release, JRPG. What do we mean by it? Well, the publisher used it. Uh, yeah. Things like and that. I don't think, 
Yeah, I don't think anyone that used it in that context like meant anything by it. And like even Yoshi P outright says that he realizes, and obviously the other developers realize that the more modern usage of that term is meant to be positive, but he still clearly doesn't like it because he got like ticked off enough to like go on a little like uh, not a rant, but to, like very specifically say, hey, I don't like this term. Here's why. And it's like, I don't blame well, the guy. I, like, I, I can't speak for anyone else, obviously, at RPG site, but I think that this is enough to make me not want to use that term going forward. I will, like, make an effort not to, because it's clear, like, especially as people are, like, digging up receipts and we're seeing, like, like, I always knew about some of the weirdness about how people talked about Japanese developed games in, like, early 7th gen. But getting those receipts and also seeing multiple developers now, saying like, echoing a bit of the same statement it's like yeah no i'm i'm just not going to use that term it's okay i can i can go without it going forward <laughs> i don't know like i think around like halfway into the 2000s i think that's when like these rpgs became branded as jrpg they weren't called that back in the day like when i played final fantasy like six as growing up as a kid it was called rpgs back in those days when did they just became jrpgs you know when did yeah. that became a term? Well, uh, yeah, it's like apparently. Well, I mean, it was around for a long time, but like specifically, what folks like uh, Yoshi P are saying is that they feel like when it really came into vogue, it was like used as a way to other their games from like like Western developers like uh, RPGs. And I can I can see where he's coming from, and it's hard to deny it when you even have people today like fought like the same week that he said that like basically doing the exact same thing they said hey we feel like this is kind of discriminatory and people are going out of their way to continue doing it deliberately well and i unfortunately right before this podcast i watched that old x-play video where they reviewed bait and kaito's origins which is a game that many people hold in high regard well i guess i won't say many people because it was a niche game but many people who have played that game hold in high regard including both Adam here on the site, and I believe Josh as well. And I'm I I just want to want to try to be in a place that when we talk about a game that disappoints us or about a game that we don't think is up to par, we're almost disappointed in it, or we wish it was better, or we talk about things we don't. The way the angle that they took on that X play thing, watching it here in this year was just it was hard to watch. And I and I guess I just try to be like self reflective and be like I hope I don't say anything that in 20 years i look back on and it's hard to watch try to judge a game on its merits not on a preconception of who made it or what it or what it was made for so yeah but, but anyways it's just i guess a very important discussion that i feel like i guess had to eventually be had but it's just yeah definitely um doesn't pair super well with another <laughs> statement yoshi p made this week but doesn't take away from the fact that he's valid for for his feelings about it and anyone has who shares those feelings it's valid considering everything and whatnot yeah and as for our coverage we will likely still in some respects use the term jrpg just because not not out of like a deliberate choice like we're going to ignore what people think it's just that it's so baked into how these games are marketed how they're tagged on their store pages how they're what's contained within their press releases so this isn't if anything's going to shift on this, it's not going to shift overnight. And yeah. you could all you could already argue, well, the term JRPG was useless, had so little utility anyways. What does it mean? And you, you'd have a point. What does it mean? There's better ways to, to contextualize how we cover these games and how we how we uh, how we analyze them and how we how we criticize them, and how we eventually, you know, review them or cover them in this podcast. 
So that is a conversation that obviously uh, will continue on. It doesn't live and die just with Final Fantasy 16. A few other little, like, while we're talking on the, uh, the Square Enix kind of boat here, a few other things that did come up this week. Uh, this one's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty simple one. Luminous Productions, of course, the studio behind Final Fantasy 15 and the more recent Forspoken, is to be merged fully within Square Enix. The studio will no longer be its own entity, effective May 1st. I kind of wish Adam was here because he's a little bit better at kind of knowing the nuances of what this, what does this actually mean? Because Luminous Productions was already a, in my, in my understanding, a wholly owned of subsidiary yeah. of Square Enix Holdings, but now it'll just be part of Square Enix Company Limited. So it uh, goes from, go ahead. I think what this means is that the team of Luminous Productions no longer exists. So those people will be shuffled into different parts of the company, which as far as I can tell, considering pretty much everything else that Square Enix uh, develops in-house is either on Unreal, en- well, on Unreal Engine, basically, that pretty much means that I don't see a future for Luminous as an engine going forward. And I think between the critical and seemingly commercial flop of Forspoken, I can't necessarily say that this was the wrong decision like honestly i feel like the writing was on the wall for this well like, you say that you... alex said the game was gonna bomb before it even came out and people clowned on him and I... <laughs> well square enix did yeah I, I kind of agree that from this perspective it makes it hard to see a future for the luminous engine but at the same time square enix does state that this merger will bring the luminous staff's technical expertise in AAA game development to square enix's other hd titles so I think that's I a good news because I don't think they're like you know as good game developers, but when it comes to like technical graphic fidelity, I think they're mm-hmm. like, well, even I, that I, when Forspoken came out, we kind of talked about how like it has a few nice things going on, but it wasn't world shaking. Yeah, it like Forspoken does not really isn't that looks, technically impressive at all. I know, but it looks good to me. I don't know, maybe I'm just easily impressed. Big gamer. I mean, it, it nothing looks, wrong with that. It looks, I mean, it looks good, but it just doesn't look like something that Unreal Engine can't do sort of thing and, and not require a bespoke set of skills that only works with this one engine. And then, of course, um, in the context of that PC port, wasn't, it wasn't great. as bad as like Wild Hearts or Wo Long or some of these other things, but it wasn't great. But obviously, we'll see what this means, because obviously Luminous Productions has had kind of a rocky history. They've only got the two titles under their belt. And even um, Final Fantasy XV... It didn't really like, even shine much until NVIDIA helped a lot with its PC port because they, they basically lifted that up and put in all, not only the, with the technical side of things, but then with the the way that the, the Royal Edition and all that stuff. To be surprised, I'm surprised they're giving a second chance to make another game considering how much I hated 15. But 15 is a is a game that sold a ton, so they probably thought, like, yeah, that's kind of an easy success in, in their eyes, and boom. And so, so obviously, the the long-term outcome of Luminous Productions merging wholly within the Square Enix company and not just under the same holdings company. Not sure if if this means that, like James said, they'll just be folded and incorporated within some of the other creative business units or what. We will see. And then another major shakeup that we don't know exactly what this will mean in the long term going forward is that the Square Enix president, Yosuke Matsuda, is stepping down and will be succeeded by Takashi Kiryu. So, of course, Matsuda is probably most known for 
his seemingly very strong fixation on blockchain and NFT over the last two years. So we don't know if this is a pivot away from that or if Kiryu will have some of the same aspirations. I know some people have been looking at, obviously, Takashi Kiryu stepping into the role of president of Square Enix. Where is he from? Uh, he, I guess he's coming from outside the game industry, but has been working on like 3D CG backgrounds for use in like virtual productions or modeling. Well, I remember, he comes from one of the biggest companies in Japan. It's like a, they do mostly advertising in Japan. It's listed as like one of the black companies because people are overworked there to death. And it has like this really like this like stigma in Japan about overworking people there, but it's known as be like one of the most profitable companies in Japan. So he comes yeah, from so that kind of background. So it looks like Takashi's been with Square Enix since June of 2020. So still relatively new to the company, but stepping into the president role, and also relatively young. It looks like he was in the end. And I got his LinkedIn here, so I don't mean to be too much of a snoop, but this is public information. Got hit, was in the MBA program at MIT in June 2018. So uh, I don't know. It's always kind of good to see fresh faces and fresh ideas, but we just don't know what this means for the direction of Square Enix because this is a bit of a wild card from my reading of the situation right here. Well, it's always good to get the brush of fresh air because when was it Yoichi Wada used to be the CEO of, of Square mm-hmm. Enix before uh, before Matsuda took ch- charge, and mm-hmm. he was terrible. He had a lot of stupid ideas. Like one of them is like he he moved his entire like infrastructure headquarters to to like a different place all because of a fortune teller telling him to do so. Uh-huh. Like, like it was a complete moron. And then a lot of these things like became a disaster for him. I think it was like fourteen disaster when it first launched, and then uh, some other crap. And then start stepping down because of that. I'm not sure Matsuda's stepping down because of all the recent like financial downturn or if he's just wanted to retire i don't think masuda is completely terrible you know he's known as like the blockchain and nft guys i when he took over there was a lot of good changes in square enix like as soon as he took over he had like start bringing more of their unlocalized games to the west he had you know he even green light the the plan to build to rebuild ff14 which seems like a really bold mood at, at the time mm-hmm. so i don't think he's completely terrible just like the more recent years Ever since he spoke about the NFT crap, then well, know, people, people, we have this, and by we, I mean all of us have this tendency to like identify person with one thing, you know, character of the day, yeah. and like he was the character of the day when his 2021 letter was NFTs, everything NFTs. Though he had been with the company since 2013, so yeah. obviously had been responsible for much more before those were even uh, were even vogue. Like technically, to me, he was the best thing when they first brought him after they fired Wada or after Wada stepped down because of all the recent, you know, all the good changes that they brought in. But now it's like, you know, his reputation is completely gone because now he's focused on NFT and blockchain and all that stuff. So I do like how I'm trying to read up. First of all, I guess Kiryu is Takashi Kiryu is 48, so not young, but maybe young for an executive standard. Also, but I feel love memeing this guy already. I already like start posting like pictures of Kiyu from Yakuza. Oh <laughs> yeah, charge of the company. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't. I like. I just. This is completely a footnote that is not relevant at all. But, like, did you know that Yosuke Matsuda appeared as a boss fight in Nier Automata's DLC? I'm like, oh yeah, he did. <laughs> and I think that covers us for for the Square Enix talk. Obviously, since we didn't get hands on directly with uh, Final Fantasy 16, we can't speak to it with any more 
direct feedback than other than kind of looking at what other people have posted. But we do kind of have that collated up on the site, as well as with the news about Luminous Productions and uh, the president change. Similar to the Pokemon DLC announcement, we got the long-awaited, long-expected announcement of new content for our game of the year last year, Elden Ring. From Software has announced Elden Ring Shadow of the Erd Tree. So this is an expansion. It is currently in development. And that's honestly all we know. We don't have a release window. We don't have pricing. Don't know if this is like a season pass content or a single expansion launch, though it seems like it's gonna it's framed as being more of the latter. So I guess we kind of knew this was coming. Now we have a title to assign to it, and I guess one kind of basic piece of key art with it, as well as like the logo, I suppose. But other than that, just all speculation. And I guess I'm not super deep enough into the Elden Ring lore to know like what the possible story avenues they could go with are. And it's all kind of guesswork at this point anyway, but we know it's coming. I mean, obviously, believe the great the base game had a really strong foundation. It was our game of the year. Obviously, it will be a really cool reason to revisit Elden Ring once this expansion does drop. But everything else at this point is just kind of up in the air. We also have another uh, announcement from this week for uh, Nice America and Fear You. Nice America has announced and plans to release. Cry Machina in fall 2023 for PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, and Nintendo Switch. And this is, if I believe, if I understand correctly, from the same talent behind Cry Star, which came out like five years ago. And did anyone here actually play that? I have not, but I was interested in it. I like the art style and stuff, but I think we have a review from it from Lucas, who used to work at RPG side. Or, no. Yeah, and he uh, he gave it a five. So um, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound good on it. Yeah, and it's, it's got fun. good artwork, and so and this game is good artwork too. And of course, the the, uh, the announcement of Cry Machina did get accompanied with an announcement trailer. It's in Japanese. One thing I do enjoy about this announcement trailer is that it does have a good mix of CG and gameplay, including gameplay with UI. I've learned recently that I really enjoy getting gameplay trailers. That don't try to make it an action movie trailer and like cut away all the UI and change the camera angle. They actually just show gameplay as it would appear as gameplay. I really do appreciate that. And they show that here. Uh, this is going to get a Steam release, well, which is pretty interesting. Uh, no, no Western release window yet other than this year. So it looks like they're going to be shooting for at least a near simultaneous release, which is kind of fun. But other than that, the studio doesn't have that great a pedigree with Crystar, though none of us can speak to that directly. But figured we'd call for it here because a lot of the I was looking at Adam's RPG calendar and we don't we don't really have a whole lot of release knowledge about what's coming out past like August. So this might be one of those games that slots into the September, October time frame. And maybe we might find a might find an audience if it manages to avoid the heavy hitters or whatever ends up in the holiday season. And then another RPG that was announced with not a whole lot of detail. This is from developer Fool's Theory, which I looked at their website, and as far as I can tell, this is their debut game. They have announced The Thaumaturge, which is an isometric, story-rich RPG based on the press release set in 1905 Warsaw. And there is a new announcement trailer, which is completely CG, about a minute and a half, showing a mysterious character summoning a demon using some sort of forbidden or black magic. 
we have a little bit of some knowledge of what the game will be like based on the press release, though we don't have any footage other than the CG trailer. Full-fledged RPG, choices and consequence. It is turn-based combat. It is isometric. It is created in Unreal Engine 5. Other than that, we don't really know a lot of details, but it was just recently announced, and it's currently slated to... I was going to say it was slated to release this year, but I guess that hasn't been nailed down. It doesn't have a slated release window yet. So interesting concept. Don't know how far out it is. Only have the CG trailer to go on, but that is the Thaumaturge. And that's kind of it for all the major announcements. So yeah, like I said at the start here, a lot of big headlines, but not a lot to dig into. But I'm sure a lot of those will be fleshed out as we approach you know, the Pokemon DLC release dates, as we learn more about the Elden Ring expansion. And then, of course, these recent game announcements as we get closer to their actual marketing cycles ramping up. A few smaller pieces of news here, followed by our usual rundown of updated sales and release dates. Uh, here's one that's a bit interesting and obviously a game that a lot of people have their eyes on here in the West. We have an announcement of a, and I hope I get this right, James, correct me if I'm wrong, a new PC release for Legend of Heroes Kuro no Kiseki, specifically yep. with work done by PH3. And this is obviously Peter Toman's or Durante's publishing house, who has worked on a lot of Falcom's PC and recently Switch releases. So pretty cool to see a game that is currently Japanese exclusive leveraging Nice and Nice America's partnership with PH3 for their for their PC releases. And I don't know if this is a spoiler, but with this announcement, with some sleuthing on the back end, there is a seemingly earmarked English title. That is Carl. actually that is oh, actually not the uh, confirmed English title. It's just a placeholder. Yeah, uh, it's a placeholder that whoever was. I'm not sure if it was someone on Durante's side, but basically it's just placeholder. Gotcha. I, they, they had to put something there. Yeah, I don't know what the like actual title will be. I I would prefer Trails Before Dawn for like thematic reasons, but I do think that Trails in the Dark, which is the placeholder, could work too, even if it doesn't fit as thematically as Before Dawn. Again, I think it fits for me just because of a darker storyline. Cool. Yeah, but yeah, but it's like Trails Before Dawn. It's like it's always darkest before dawn. And that's like, and it's the whole thing. Like, even look at the curl logo, you'll see that the Kiseki part of it on the right, you can see it's like dawn is just about to break. So it's before dawn. It's perfectly. <laughs> so so yeah. maybe, maybe they can do curl one, curl two, and somehow get dusk and dawn in there or something like that. We'll see if they can get clever with it. But tee up something for me just because I'm confused on something. Kronos Kaseki was already on PC, but this is just a new port or an updated port? Or do well, I have it's, it's the first it's port an, is by Cloud Leopard Entertainment. Yeah, so this is a new port that is completely separate. And I actually made a tweet last year in around April where where I said that this is the funniest way we could have figured out that Nisa already had licensed Kuro because the PC version that Clouded Leopard published was only Chinese and Korean. And I time i was like they're gonna do something like Nayuda where they publish the pc version in japanese first and then they add in an english localization later and that's exactly what's happening yeah and i wish i would have this version but oh well and by, and by the way we do know that this is also a stealth con confirmation for a localization because uh the nihon falcom twitter account did say in their tweet about the pc port English language will be added in the later date. Oh, neat. I mean, that's kind of not surprising, but it's kind of good to still hear that because Corona Kaseki yeah. for the longest time felt like forever away. And now it might be an early next year release, which I know is still way too far for some people. But 
I think we're, we're getting, getting there. there. We're because so obviously, obviously we got Hajimari in in summer, and then we got Kuro one, and then Kuro two, and then of course still no information. Different series, I know, but no information about Western East Ten. If they could get Kuro out this year in English, it'll, it's pretty much almost caught up. It's not. Say. It's not uh, going to be this year in English because you have like New that's coming out in. Didn't they say June or was it July? I think it was June. I think it was June, and then. Nayuta, it would be later this year. I'm pretty sure what's going to happen is we'll probably get Kuro 1 at the beginning of next year and then Kuro 2 at the end of next year. I think that would be the best or the the best and most likely outcome. So it's still behind, but getting there. And I think the the cadence that they were able to hold with uh, Zero, Azure, and then getting Hajimari out all within a calendar year, obviously is... And people, I know it's not fast enough for some people, but it's it's yeah. And and as I explained in a, in a previous podcast, as painful as it is to watch them do like push out zero and Azure after getting the Geofront localization, what I said at the time, and I stand by this, is that if you want there to be a proper localization for Reverie, the teams that worked on that localization need to be familiar with Crossbell which means that they needed to do a separate editing pass, which takes time for games of that size. So, I mean, it, 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 if you wanted Reverie to be a good translation, taking so long for editing for what was essentially already completed localizations was necessary. And then going forward, it's just, it sucks, but I would blame Falcom way before I would blame, blame Nisa for how long these localizations take, is all I'd say. And of course, uh, Trails from Zero is a damn good game, and you should play it. Azure is pretty good, too. Azure is better. Mm, it's I, I prefer Zero. Uh, I, like Azure, I like Azure a lot, mm. but obviously it left a lot of bad taste in future games because they copied that formula down to, down to its core. Mm-hmm. All right, this is just a, another trailer release for an upcoming game. We've talked on this podcast several times about... Loop 8, Summer of Gods. This is the kind of indie persona-like being published by X-Lead and Marvelous. We got a new trailer for it. Um, it's the opening movie trailer, so it's pretty much just animation and themes, not not any new news on the gameplay of that. But we have it on the site if you like, I don't know, pretty animation. And that, okay, that game is uh, slated to come out June 6th here in the West. And then this is a game that we talked about very briefly last week on the podcast and very briefly earlier this podcast as of the time of recording we're recording this podcast on march 4th tomorrow on march 5th the deal field chronicle will get its free update and this is the update that includes the new scenario involving walter quinn a new difficulty very hard some sort of extra mode new game plus so it just seems like a pretty comprehensive update to deal field chronicle it is going to be a free update which is kind of nice so for those that thought the deal field was an interesting game, which I know Adam and Josh both did, maybe we'll hear some impressions about this update to deal field chronicle. And the rest of this is just a few more release dates. Outer worlds, which released back in 2019, obviously has a sequel in the works. Outer Worlds spacers choice edition. This is basically the gold edition of the game that wraps in the two uh, DLC packs, murder on Arianos and Pearl and Gorgon. The Outer Worlds Spacer's Spacer's Choice Edition will be releasing on March 7th, so also just in a couple days. So obviously, kind of a good, just comprehensive package for anyone who wants to replay or play that game for the first time ahead of its sequel, which is still currently undated. Trinity Trigger, this is the uh, the game from Exceed Marvelous Furu 
that kind of is the it's like the three player top down almost crystal chronicles looking like game where you equip the different weapon types to determine your skill set we have a release date for it now it'll launch on april 25th in north america a little bit later in europe and australia it will release there on may 16th and then in addition to that a pc version has seemingly been announced because the new newly uploaded trailer includes a steam logo so kind of a, a fun surprise there and then alongside of this uh, North American and PC release date trailer information, we got a new trailer. And again, this trailer shows plenty of gameplay. And again, I think the last time we talked about Trinity Trigger, I thought this. The cover art and the 2D art looks really good and really fun and really stylish. And then the uh, the in-game art leaves a little bit to be desired. But hey, it might still be fun. Kind of got that little chibi Crystal Chronicles DS sort of art style to it. But that will come out in late April. Uh, Mugen Souls, the game that surprisingly got a Switch port announced either earlier this year or late last year, will be coming out on Switch on April 27th. And then Atlas Fallen, this is a game that was announced last year, I believe right before the, uh, the Game Awards. This is a, a new action RPG from Deck 13. It will be launching on Xbox Series, PlayStation 5, and Steam on May 16th. Which I thought was kind of interesting because I thought we hadn't seen a whole lot from this game yet. I remember if you go to one of last year's later podcasts from probably like November timeframe, I thought that this was the most interesting new IP premise of a game that I was excited about. But we still haven't seen a whole lot from it yet. The two trailers that we've got for the game, I think one was just like a story trailer and one was like an Unreal 5 kind of like showcase trailer. We haven't seen any gameplay yet. And Deck 13 in their announcement has said that a gameplay reveal trailer is coming soon which i thought was interesting to get the release date before we know what the gameplay looks like but we'll see so obviously the release date will be may 16th and hopefully within a week or so we'll get some new gameplay about atlas fallen so april and may release schedules and include and june as well i suppose are starting to fill up we're starting to see what's going to be uh asked to all this deluge of games in the february march time frame and we're going to be looking forward to as we head into spring and early summer and that kind of covers it for the news rundown for this podcast so a lot of big headlines but not a lot of runtime there in terms of going through what they will cover but that kind of means that we're going to be expecting a lot of details to drop as a lot of these announcements are fleshed out on and as we go into the marketing cycle proper of some of these games and updates that are going to be coming out later in the year again the reviews that we talked about the redemption reapers the wolong fallen dynasty reviews are both up on the site at rpgsite.net uh, we've got all the guides that i know that alex and chow and a few others have been working on for octopath traveler 2 are up on the site as well we can be found on all the social media channels. Just search for RPG site on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. If you've listened to this podcast entirely in its entirety and you have any feedback for us, please leave a comment if you'd like at the bottom of our YouTube video or on the, on the site post or on your podcast service of choice. And we will be back next week with another episode of the podcast. We'll get back, hopefully get Josh and or Adam back to see what they're up to, what they've been playing. I know that Josh has been playing a particular title that he's been really stoked about. So hopefully we'll get his impressions on that game when we get him on the podcast again. But thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and take care. We'll talk to you guys next time. Later, everyone. Good night.